0: This is Jocko podcast number 359 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. There was a loud burst of gunfire, and Cowie fell to the ground, exposed in the street. He had taken a round to his right femur. The barrage of enemy gunfire continued to cascade toward him from multiple enemy positions, kicking up dust and sending ricochet and secondary frag of rock and concrete right at him. Cowie immediately returned fire but was unable to move quickly to cover because of the grievous injury to his leg. Within seconds of hitting the ground, Cowie heard a new weapon enter the chaos. Michael Monsoor, the automatic weapons gunner, broke from his covered position in an adjacent courtyard into the middle of the street. In that same moment Michael sent a long burst of 762 millimeter rounds from his mark 48 machine gun into enemy positions although carrying a heavy load of equipment Michael deftly moved to where Cowie lay wounded and bleeding he stood in front of him and used his lean frame and armor as a shield to protect Cowie from incoming enemy fire This gave the wounded seal a reprieve. He needed to continue to call for backup on his radio. Michael's technical acumen was apparent as he swiftly engaged and suppressed enemy positions with his Mark 48, affectionately known as the pig. Every second and every round mattered. The other seal began to prepare Cowie to move while Michael engaged enemy insurgents. Let's move, the other seal shouted. Michael grabbed Cowie's drag handle on top of his armor and began to pull him back to the courtyard while still firing his Mark 48. Cowie looked up at Michael as he dragged him across the road, but the perspective was not what he expected. Cowie felt as if for just a moment he had left his body below. He looked down upon the scene. As Michael dragged him the snaps and ricochets of the heavy machine gun of enemy fire continued to hit the ground around them Cowie couldn't believe that not one round had found its intended target Instantly the light seemed to shift then Cowie saw them Two large feathered wings wrapped from behind Michael around the trio as they moved him out of the street Cowie knew in that instant They were not alone in the fight. Then, Cowie was looking up at Michael again. He could feel the pain and hear the gunfire. Dust filled the air and the the sun beat down upon them as they moved. Once back behind cover, the other seal began working on his injured teammate. The enemy fire picked up again just as Michael finished reloading. Michael answered with a heavy volley into the enemy position. JP and the rest of the squad, along with their Iraqi partners, joined the firefight minutes later. Lieutenant Seth Stone, the officer in charge of Delta platoon, was deep into radio comms, providing situation updates to the chain of command, coordinating with units in other sectors, and facilitating the movement of the responding soldiers, Marines, and Iraqi partners into the fight. <clears throat> and that right there is an excerpt from a book that has just come out, which is entitled Defend Us in Battle, the true story of MA2 Navy SEAL Medal of Honor recipient, Michael A. Monsoor. And the book was written by Michael's father, George Monsoor, along with Rose Ray, who is an author and is also the wife of a SEAL. And the book was written by interviewing friends and family of Michael. Many of the members of Task Unit Bruiser shared their stories to paint a picture of Michael's bravery, his character, his skill as a seal. But of course Michael Monsor was much more than just a seal. He was a man of compassion, of humor, of love, and of faith he was the best and he set an incredible example for all who knew him and for anyone that hears his story and it's an honor to have Michael's dad George Monsoor here with us tonight to share some of this incredible story with us George thanks for ja- thanks for joining us tonight thanks for having me on it's uh. It's an honor to have you down here. Um, I know it's not that far of a drive, but I know it can be a little challenging sometimes. Uh, But glad you could make it down. Um, I guess before we get, I guess we have to start at this story, maybe at the beginning with a little bit about you and your background. So you're originally from Wisconsin, is that right?
1: Yeah, I was uh, born in La Crosse. And uh, my family came from uh, uh, Lebanon, so uh, there was that transition.
0: Of, so are you first-generation American, or are you second-generation? You no,
1: know, it's like half, half <laughs> overborn, born, half. So I, I was, uh, you know, it was half of that family. There's was like 10 kids uh, were born he, uh, here, and half was born on the other side. So, uh, yeah, so there's a whole kind of a different world. Uh, the Middle Eastern world and the American world, so uh, yeah, there's things that are always a little different <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and so you were how how long did you stay in Wisconsin for
1: uh, not very long um, i th- I think uh they asked us to leave like the first year, you know they told us to get out of Wisconsin and we <laughs> <laughs> went and, to California and
0: then it was California. <laughs> And yeah. so how old were you when you ended up in California? I was probably... Pretty about, young?
1: Yeah, I was probably about one. And uh, that's kind of uh, you know where, uh, where the rest of the family was born. I had uh, uh, two brothers and three sisters. Uh, my dad was uh, uh, in World War II, and um, he had a lot of problems after the war. And um, he couldn't hold down a job, and uh, he ended up just being a gambler. So we had kind of a... Uh, you know, I mean, we didn't realize uh, it wasn't the best, but uh, our, cl- our family was close, and uh, my mom basically was the one that uh, kept everything together, and um, we didn't realize we were poor until somebody told me in school.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then you, as you're growing up, you're growing up in California in like the 50s and 60s then. Yeah. That had to be pretty is it like how how does it compare with the movies
2: <laughs> well
1: we would watch these these movies and uh, our tv shows and you'd have uh, father knows bass and all these fathers are walking around with suits and ties <laughs> <laughs> I look over at my dad, he's in his skim, he's reading the racing for The only thing he ever says to me is beer me,
0: you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I would look at the TV and I look at our family, just not quite the same. <laughs> uh, so you end up, I mean, you're going to school. Where you, Where'd you go to high school? Uh, I went to uh,
1: St. John Bosco. It's a boys' school. Um, I was fortunate that I was a pretty good football player, so it was a good fit. It was uh, it was um, it was pretty tough. Those priests, uh, these guys served in World War II, and they didn't put up with a lot of nonsense. And it was probably the best thing for me. <laughs> you know, they made it very clear what I could do and what I couldn't do.
0: And then, so you played football. Yeah. And what what was your plan when you graduate? When you graduated? I mean, nowadays it's like everyone has to go to college. Has to go to college. Did you have that plan or?
1: Yeah, the plan was because it was a college prep school, was to go to college, but it was an all boys school. So my plan was different when I went to college. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you had to make up for lost time? <laughs> yeah.
1: I was, anybody that wanted to get on the back of my motorcycle, we're good. <laughs> so uh, I basically, uh, my grades uh, basically said to me, uh, you're going to get drafted. So uh, I decided to outsmart them and I uh, joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. outsmarted about that one, huh?
0: So what year was it that you joined the Marine Corps? Uh
1: sixty-eight. I went sixty-eight to seventy-two.
0: So so I mean when you Vietnam is full blown in nineteen sixty eight when you joined. No. Like you you is it just known that you're going to Vietnam?
1: Yeah. Um, especially in my MOS. It wasn't the MOS I wanted. Uh, I was that guy that was always trying to stay out of the fray, you know, stay in the middle. You know? But anyway, the problem was if your grades weren't, weren't uh, good, then you would go straight over as a grunt. I didn't want to be a grunt. Uh, so um, I kept my grades up. But the, the thing was every time you did well in school, you got another school. I did well in the tests. And I got aviation school and then aviation school, I did well, and I got helicopters. Helicopters is not where you wanna be in the Marine
0: Corps. <laughs> even, it's funny, even as you say like, oh, I went to school for aviation, and like that sounds that sounds like, a, you know, okay, you're gonna go learn this trade, yeah, and you're gonna work on aircraft. Exactly. In Vietnam, that's a little bit different. <laughs> it's a little bit of a different outcome.
1: I, I got there and I said, hey, you know, this wasn't the deal. Uh, you know, when you sign up, they tell you one thing, but you don't always get what you want. And I certainly didn't. It was like, this wasn't the deal. And the guy goes, you'll have more schools. Don't worry about it. The last school I went to was machine gun, 50-cal mm-hmm. machine gun school.
0: That was it. What, <laughs> what, was, uh, what was the shock of boot camp like? Um,
1: actually, uh, playing Bos- uh, Bosco football, wasn't uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the boot camp wasn't a big deal. <laughs> uh, we, had, uh, we had a coach that carried a baseball bat. and uh, i remember since it was a catholic school he told us why god gave his heads and that was to punish the other players (laughs) and he had this bat and we had the cages and he would smack you in the head with the with the bat just so you understood what you're supposed to use your head for and uh, i remember we had a game i think it was venice and uh we were just brutal we weren't brutal on purpose. just that's the way we were trained to hit. And uh, the, the principal wrote a letter to the school after, you know, after the game, just trashing. <laughs> we didn't cheat or anything. Uh, we played a straight game, but we laid people out. You
0: know, uh-huh. So Marine <laughs> so Corps boot camp was perfectly fine. Yeah, with
1: you. it was fine. You know, uh, I had a couple of problems. Uh, just understanding it, because I really, uh, my family served World War Two, uh, Korean War, and uh, as, you, as, you, as you know, my sons all served uh, in the Marine Corps other than Mike, but I didn't get it. I was like, uh, I thought you go in and, um, <clears throat> you know, you get paid, uh, I thought at least minimum wage, and, and all the military stuff, it just wasn't used to, because my father was definitely you don't get a lot of uh, discipline from a professional gambler <laughs> so uh it was another world for me the most discipline i got was at uh, saint john bosco but i remember on payday you'd go in you get a little bit of money to get your soap and, and those type of things and uh so they gave us instructions they said you go in there you march in there you make a right turn then a left turn then you center yourself in front of the CO's desk. He will push a book in front of you. You look down and look at that pay book, and you will say, the, sir is co- or the, the pay is correct, sir, and look straight ahead. So I'm thinking, okay, you know. I do it perfect, and I look down, and I say, $36? <laughs> 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 where's your military buried and died uh, for $36 <laughs> so they it was uh, they finally got my attention and got me squared away uh, I was a private for quite a while
0: <laughs> uh, so the last, the last school you went to was 50 Cal school but they yeah. sent you to Hilo school and yeah. then what year did you deploy to Vietnam uh,
1: it was uh, uh, let's see I think I was 19, so it was uh, 69, and got back in, yeah, 69, August 69, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was August 69.
0: And how was the, uh, how was the deployment? How'd you get over there? Did you take a charter aircraft over there?
1: <laughs> yeah, we took a, uh, I think it was a Pan Am. <laughs> 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 that, was, uh, that was just a zoo. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the officers were in front. And the Snuffies were in the back, and uh, you could just see it on those stewardesses' faces which one they wanted to be, the front or the back. <laughs> it was a long, it was a long flight, and it was sixteen hours, mm-hmm. and uh, we landed. The only we we landed once for fuel in Hawaii, and they literally wouldn't let us get off. And they have the guards out there. I'm thinking, are they passing the message to us or what? And then uh, we finally got in and uh, started sorting out uh, where we were going to go. And uh, I was really fortunate in the long run because, uh, you know, how this works, you just your number and these guys will go here and these guys will go here. And I just skated through the whole deal. I ended up uh, in uh, only going there for just a little bit. And then I was simply um, at Okinawa most of the time. And uh, I started feeling guilty because, um, you know, my friends uh, were over there. And then when they were coming back, uh, some big changes. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it really broke my heart. And, I, God, I felt so guilty. Uh, I was just there for a blink. mm mm-hmm. So um, you know how you're in the service and you just don't understand how certain things happen. You know it's like um, how a close friend uh, you know will go and or the, or some of them come back and they just they're just screwed up. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of my dad, and that's why I didn't get my dad until I was in the Marine Corps, and I realized. I would go to the hospital, at veteran's hospital when he was young and had these breakdowns, but I still couldn't get it through my head what was going on. Then after I saw the vets coming back in Okinawa where you're getting cleaned up, ready to go, you realize there's some guys that uh, really got hit hard mentally and mm-hmm. physically too, but mentally is really
0: uh, something that just doesn't go away. What did your What did your dad do in World War II? Was he in the army? Was he in the Marine Corps? Uh, Navy? My,
1: my dad was. Uh, he's actually a super athlete. Um, he was a Golden Glove champion. He was the Fleet Naval champion. And back then, there was a lot of. That's where all the men were. But he was in the Navy, and he was on. I don't know what they call them, like uh, pom pom guns or mm-hmm. something. They're uh, they're on an air uh, uh, battleship, and his job was to protect the aircraft oh. or the. Uh, uh the planes from the on the aircraft uh, carrier. And uh, a friend of his was telling me my dad would take it just bad if uh they hit those uh those ships. He just thought it was he had to get every one. And um he says that uh, if they were taking fire he he would
0: stay right on that gun. So Yeah the the films of the World War Two US Navy yeah. is it's crazy to watch those things. It's yeah. crazy to watch those. And they have actually both sides, you know, they have the Japanese that are coming in to drop bombs. You can watch those films as yeah. well.
1: Yeah. And it was in all the big ones, you know, the midway and all that stuff. And uh so it just it just uh mentally wiped him out. Mm. He would have these just um
0: just go off on us. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's. I don't think we're ever going to have a naval war like World War II again, yeah. where it's where where the the humans are at such a massive amount of pressure. Um, I mean, of course, something in the Navy can always go bad. I mean, you yeah. know, if a, if a vessel, get, I mean, does, you don't even need a war. Yeah. You know, things can happen. Yeah. But but that that World War II from a from a naval war perspective is just it's it's horrendous. I'm mean, I was talking with one of my friends the other day. Even just being, even just firing those big guns, these guys didn't have hearing protection. You know how many? You know, and right now they're they're doing all these things with football and CTE and and po- uh, you know traumatic brain injury, the TBI. Yeah. They they tell us now in the SEAL teams, we shoot these rockets, Carl Gustav rockets, and and, and they're bi- they they like rock you. You know, it's like you get it's like you just got cracked they, in the head. Yeah, and now they're we used to just sit out as a range safety officer we just sit out there and shoot those things all day long and now they're saying you can only shoot 3 a day and all this stuff but can you imagine being like your dad on a on a naval vessel with the you're just getting concussion after concussion after concussion it's f- ruthless ruthless it's I, I don't think people understand how
1: uh they just take it for granted you know you're 18 19 years old and um or even the SEALs, uh, you guys are in a firefight. And then next day you're going to another one. You're, you're looking at policemen who were in a firefight for a half hour and they retire, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like it, these kids are out there and they just get up and do it and do it and do it. And my wife used to worry so much when we'd have these ceremonies and she'd meet the SEALs. And she used to just think, how much are they carrying around? How much baggage are they carrying around? And uh, it's just people just don't realize um, how it can just uh, wipe a guy out, how mm-hmm. those memories come back, and uh, they just take it for granted. They, like you say, pros, they got this for them and that. And they got these young kids that are life-and-death situations carrying 100 pounds on their back hundred and some degrees and that's like they do it again the next day
0: and the next day it's crazy the next day
1: the this country doesn't understand what these guys go through they don't
0: appreciate it yeah. so you get done with vietnam your deployment to vietnam you come home and you're planning the whole time you're going to do your four years and punch out
1: yeah uh that was the plan and uh, it was funny. We, we were gone for 13 months, and the world really goes fast.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I remember uh, w- w- uh, my buddies, we were sitting in the car. We we're going to go get some beer. I, was, uh, I wasn't even old. I think I was 20. And uh, anyway, I go in to get the beer. And uh, so as I, as I go to leave, I stop, and I go, hey, wait a minute. I need a church key. And the guy goes, A church key? A church key back then is what you used to open up your cans oh, of beer. C-Rat. Okay. So yeah. So and the guy's looking at me and he goes, You don't need a church. How do you open up the beer then? And he goes like this. He pulls the beer out from under the or a soda from under the counter and he goes like this. He goes, You go like this, you know. <laughs>
0: Oh, so the new cans had <laughs> the come <new> out.
2: cans. <laughs> so,
1: I go back to the car, and uh, and the guys. I go, check this out, guys. The guys go, whoa,
0: <laughs> where have we been? <laughs> yeah, I've had some guys on that were POWs in Vietnam. Yeah, and like you want, you know, these are guys that got shot down in like 1965, 1966, 1967. Yeah. Yeah they come back in 1973 it is a whole yeah. new world i mean it was a whole new world for yeah. them uh and even the year like i mean you must have been gone 69 that the world changed a lot in oh, that year uh, oh yeah i mean uh when we got back they really
1: hated us i was stunned how many people hated us and uh i'm thinking <laughs> what did we do <laughs> People just come out and insult us. Uh, you know, I remember uh, uh, I was at the airport, and back then you had to fly on your uniforms. And uh, it was not a good idea all the time. You were like targets. And I had a woman up in San Francisco just rush up to me, and she's got her children, and she just hates me, and I don't even know her. And uh, she, says, she says, how do you kill babies? And it's like... And I started thinking, why should I take her seriously? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, we try to give them a little bit more lead, <laughs> you know, because they're quick. <laughs> I'm sure she appreciated that. <laughs> oh, she didn't appreciate <laughs> it. But, you know, it's like, how long do we keep taking it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they, uh, it, was, it was weird the way they treated us. Uh, uh, Virginia, I think they had signs, dogs and Marines uh, stay off the grass. <laughs> And I thought, when are we going to learn this lesson? These guys are called, and now they volunteer to do something that nobody else wants to do. Now they're treating them a lot better,
0: Mm -hmm. which I totally appreciate. No, they're definitely—it's definitely a different world for us coming home now. Uh, So, what'd you do when you got? What'd you do when you got out?
1: Uh, I was totally drifting. I knew I wanted, I wanted to uh, start a business, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to. Uh, When I was younger, I was uh, learning the uh, contracting business. I was like a human wheelbarrow. You know, I just, (laughs) whatever they wanted loaded up, that's what I would do. So I got into contracting and uh, then went to school at at night and um, built a business. Uh, we did, I had a partner that I went with ever since, uh, elementary school. So, uh, we built it up to about 60 guys. And then from there I bought a, uh, uh, woman's store for my sister, uh, who went through a divorce and, uh, figured she needed t- an income. I-, I bought a store for her, but it really didn't make enough money. So I ended up with, um, uh, f- uh, four stores in, depart- in, uh, in the malls, and then I decided I would um, uh, start manufacturing clothes. So it just kind of worked that way, and then uh, I got a 300-seat a restaurant, bar, entertainment, and uh, everything uh, was working just great. Living in a nice house, had the kids, wife's
0: happy. So you, what year did you meet Sally?
1: I met her before I... Uh, I uh, I went overseas. Okay, I, she was a, uh, a car hop. <laughs> I remember uh, watching her, and uh, I just love the way she looked in those slacks. You know,
3: <laughs> what's a car hop?
1: A car hop is. Uh, you, at Back in the day, uh, you would pull up into, at a restaurant in, in the parking lot, and the girls would come out, had little cowboy hats on and stuff, <laughs> and they had the menus, so you eat right in your car. Oh, okay. Yeah,
2: and gotcha.
1: this is where a lot of the young guys would hang out, uh, hang out in their cars and go out and check everybody's cars, and you know, it was just yeah, a real social yeah. thing.
2: Gotcha.
1: And I remember uh, she bends down to take the order, and I see her face. And it was just weird. It was like uh, she her, her front teeth were just kind of turned in a little bit. And it just, I don't know, I just loved her face. <laughs> and uh, we knew each other for five years uh, on and off, on and off. When I came back, uh, she was engaged to get married. But it was Uh-oh. my fault because <laughs> I thought that, I was going to go to Vietnam and the life expectancy was not good uh, sitting behind a a 50 cal in a helicopter so I didn't want her to waste her time so I says you know uh why don't you go ahead and see other people you know I am you know so you know good luck. I come back and I find out she's engaged to get married. (laughs) 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 I was like thinking and then I bumped into her at a party and um. They just started over again, and it was nice. And uh,
0: So she broke off the engagement? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nicely done, George. I've
1: apologized to her for
0: years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, okay, so you had, you're just basically an entrepreneur. you got restaurants, you got clothing manufacturing, yeah, you got was, a but you got all kinds of stuff going on.
1: Yeah, and uh, we had a couple of racehorses, which was, uh, was a lot of fun. And uh, it, was, it was good. And then, uh, so you had Sarah uh, first. Sarah, and uh, then we had Jim, and then uh, Michael, and then Joe. Uh-huh. Joe we almost had in the car. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, was, that was funny. Uh, I got to the hospital, and uh, the emergency side, it was, at, uh, it was at Long Beach Memorial. And at that time, you had to park on a slope. And I just pulled the car up, and, uh, and I ran into the hospital. And I said, my wife's having a baby. Get ready. And I grabbed a wheelchair, and I go out there. And because they we're on the slope, I'm trying to get her out, and the door keeps oh. closing. And then uh, so I kind of moved myself around, and then I got my hand on the, on the wheelchair. And I finally get her in, and she sits back, and then the weight pushes the wheelchair back crushes my hand my hand is now uh right there down onto the asphalt and uh i'm trying to uh get her back up so i can get my hand out but it all worked out we got her in there as soon as we got her up to the uh into the elevator they were right there they took her and they told me to change my clothes i ran in and joe was already born
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh um I want to read a section here from the book uh, when when Michael was born. Um, you say this in the book. As they gazed upon their second son in the bright hospital room with his inquisitive brown eyes, looking right back at theirs, his matted dark hair contrasting his fresh soft skin, George knew Michael was the right name for him. Sally wholeheartedly agreed. He was named after St. Michael the Archangel, who in the Old Testament cast out of heaven all of the fallen angels led by Lucifer and condemned them to eternity in hell. He was a soldier full of strength and feared nothing. It was a perfect fit. The hospital staff performed their newborn well checks on little Michael, and after some time had passed, the pediatrician walked into their room. Mrs. Monsoor, Michael has jaundice, which is why his skin has a yellowish tint. It's caused by an excess of pigment, Typically because an obstruction of the bile duct you will be discharged today But we will need to keep Michael and put him in an incubator until his levels get lower Sally looked back at the doctor. She'd heard what he was telling her but before she could help herself She blurted out doctor. I'm not leaving my son (laughs) That was Sally (laughs) The pediatrician thought for a few minutes as he could see the unwavering determination in her eyes and that she was adamant about not not leaving him well, Mrs. Monsour, we'll let you take him home, but you have to agree to set a protocol of treatment in the home, including sitting with him by the window in the sun for two to three hours a day. If you follow our instructions and he continues to improve, he will not need to stay or come back to the hospital. Thank you so much, I will. I will do everything you need, Sally replied. So there's, there's Mikey arrives on the scene, and he ends up having asthma too.
1: Yeah, it just, it was like from day one, mikey (laughs) mikey's was like uh always had a problem and uh got through that and his skin got better and then as he got a little bit older uh we realized he was having breathing problems and then we found out he had asthma but being mikey it wasn't it's never just a little bit i mean it's always (laughs) full-blown and it was rough uh, for years, like the asthma. Yeah, I mean, we would check on him every night, uh, fearful that he would stop breathing. And he, you know, he just—it was just so small and so weak because he really couldn't exert himself. And he's looking at his uh, his brothers and his sisters, our sister, and they're just excelling, and uh, he's just trying to keep up. Mm-hmm. You know, they would race in the pool and uh, people are thinking they're swimming, but no, Mikey couldn't swim because he would get so exhausted moving all those body parts, so he would race them by hand over hand along the side of the pool. (laughs) (laughs) He would always compete. He would just
0: find a different way to compete. (laughs) Mm. Uh, And again, look, this book is Defend Us in Battle. It's it's just an outstanding book. Uh, I'm reading small chunks of it, but the The stories are just fantastic to read. um this one I must admit I felt like i had to read I had to read this one here. It says, as he grew older, Michael was often the target of bullying at school as well as on the playground and began to hate it. He felt profoundly for himself the effects of someone victimizing someone less able to defend themselves in order for them to gratify their own desires. Even in his youngest years, he was keenly aware of the injustice that took place. One afternoon when Michael was around nine or ten, his father took him to the racetrack to scout out some future horse prospects as their family raced Thoroughbreds at the time. When they arrived, George began to chat with the trainer and Michael ran off to play on the playset campground. As he played with the other children, George noticed three older boys pushing the other children, or children around, including Michael. They made a show of it in an effort to demonstrate to all the children that they were in charge. They took, over, they took over the only three swings and refused to get off any of them for the smaller and younger children to use. Not your swing, it's mine now, they taunted the younger ch- kids. George called Michael back to him and looked at his tears, tear-filled eyes. Come here, Mikey, I know those kids are being bullies, but not every wrong is yours to right. There's not always justice in the world. Sometimes you just have to move on, George told Michael. Dad, what is justice? Michael asked, his curiosity perked on hearing the new word. Justice is getting or giving what is deserved, whether it's reward or punishment, Mikey. George responded to his son, whom he always called Mikey when it was just the two of them. George could see his son taking in his words, yet his son's question continued to cut through his thoughts as they headed to their seats to watch the horse race. He could see in Michael's eyes that the issue was not resolved. After the action-packed race, they returned to the area where they met the trainer. George, George asked Michael to stay nearby him and wait for him. But as soon as George was speaking with the trainer, Michael shot off to the playground with fire in his eyes. Those same boys were again back on the swings taunting the younger children. Michael ran straight up to them from behind and ripped each boy out of their swing one at a time. He then sprinted up the play structure and began to climb the ladder that led up to the rocket ship that had multiple layers of slides and ladders. He knew if he could get to the top, only one bully could get to him at a time. And sure enough, they chased him right up after and one by one, he kicked each boy backwards over and over as they tried to attack him. When he could no longer defend himself, he initiated his escape plan. He leaped through the top rocket opening down the slide and ran as fast as he possibly could back to his father. This time with the biggest grin on his face and eyes sparkling with excitement, he knew he was safe with his father by his side and it executed the, his plan perfectly. George and Michael got into their car to head back home and George glanced across at his son who sat in the passenger seat, victoriously gr- grinning back at him? Dad, I think that's justice.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, when I was looking at him smiling, I was thinking, who was smiling the most? Because it, it, it was just this a special day for me, and he, I know he felt so good that uh, he outsmarted the bullies, and he just that was just the, the beginning on him and bullies. <laughs>
0: yeah that was like a sly move you know that was the thing about mikey is he was quiet but he you could he was, tell he was plotting he was he was yeah. plotting <laughs> <laughs> so that was like the beginning of him plotting moves on trying people. to figure something out <laughs> yeah uh so you were doing good i mean going back to just family businesses all this stuff got going on you were yeah. living in anaheim hills which is a nice spot nice view of the city yeah and then economy hit uh,
1: economy <clears throat> and uh, the IRS Ouch. and the IRS back then before uh, George Bush Sr. Uh, they were they had they had carte blanche they did what they wanted and um, they would accuse you of something and too bad uh, you had to abide by it. Well, I didn't owe them any money, and so I fought. And it was an eight-year battle. Ooh. But that battle really wiped me out. And I won. I got a little piece of paper that says, George Monster versus the IRS, pay nothing. <laughs> I might have been better off just to write him a check. <laughs> but I was young. I think I was uh, 30 or something, 31. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just, you know, that's wrong, and I'm going to fight for it. And uh, maybe I should have negotiated, but... Uh, that kind of money eight hundred uh, six hundred plus uh penalties like eight hundred thousand dollars back in the seventies you 're talking about buying seven or eight uh million dollar houses in today 's market, yeah. yeah, so anyway, I fought and then it really crushed us uh business wise and um, it was uh, it was amazing really, how strong our family was because we, <laughs> we went from a pretty nice life to me coming home one day after the banks called me and said I have been gutted and I had $29 in my pocket and uh it was str- kind of struck me as like uh I thought I'd feel bad about it but it was uh I th- it was just the money was gone I still had my family and uh you just work around it and I took uh I went my income definitely changed <laughs> Got a job working as a security guard, and I took the job because they paid every Friday, and I wanted to make sure my kids had uh, groceries. And so uh, I just did that until I put some deals together, and it took a while.
0: And you moved from Anaheim Hills down to this. Is when you moved down to Garden Grove, yeah, and this
1: the, this area wasn't uh, wasn't the best, uh, but it was a good experience for my kids. Mm-hmm. And because uh, they would see uh, at, when they, I'd, they'd come to the factory with me, factory was down in L.A., and that was a pretty rough area. And they would see looking out the window. you know some of these people had it really tough. And we used to have a a bear of a man that would sleep in front of our in uh, uh, front of the, the door on the porch every night. And uh, he, would, he wouldn't say anything to me. It was uh, more of a grunt all the time. And he had probably had some mental problems. He was just a huge guy. And I asked him, I says, are you sleeping here every night? And it was just a kind of a grunt. Was this of your house? Or no, this the was at the factory okay. and down in <clears throat> L.A. And so I thought to myself, a guy that big, I got no problem with him sleeping here at night because mm-hmm. it was a rough area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, put, I would put blankets out for him. And he, he stayed there for years. Every morning, uh, I would come in, give it, get, bring him a big breakfast burrito. He still hardly say anything, just grunts. And he would roll up his, uh, his blankets and disappear all day. And then in the evening, he'd come back. And the kids were fascinated with this guy. They wanted to be his friend, but he wasn't buying it. But anyway, they kind of saw that world. Now... Uh, we're in an area where you're, it's just a little bit of everything, a sprinkling of all kinds of nationalities, and it's. It was a lower income area, and, uh, and the kids were like, <laughs> and from a nice, you know, uh, high school with uh, all their friends are wealthy, they all go to Europe and all that stuff, which I didn't really like them around those kids all the time because. I didn't want them to uh, think this is the way it is. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to see the other side, so it was a good experience and you've met my kids you know they're they're good with whoever hundred percent they just roll with whatever and I, and the whole family's that way so uh, it was good for them uh, Sarah wasn't thrilled with it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Sorry, Sarah. <laughs>
1: but uh, she ended up, uh, you know, being a leader in the ba- on the basketball team and all of the kids did great in sports. And, uh, and it was just it, all, all in all, I think it was one of the best things that happened.
0: Well, we've got a um, – I guess it's a, some kind of mythological thing in my family that started with when I was growing up at Christmas time. <clears throat> Apparently my mother's dad – when Christmas would be coming, he would tell everyone it's going to be a lean Christmas. And so that's what my parents would tell us. Like, hey, it's going to be a lean Christmas. And then, you know, when I was raising my kids and I'm in the Navy uh, yeah. and I, you know, we're just, well, I got three kids, then four kids. Like, yeah. we didn't have any money. I've been telling my kids it's going to be a lean Christmas. <laughs> and, you know, we get like... I remember, you know, we get used presents, yeah. And I mean, I got my my kids got used presents all the time. Used surfboards, <laughs> used toys, everything was just used because <laughs> it's going to be a lean Christmas. Yeah. But you got a story that might, that when you moved uh, down, I think it might have been the first Christmas down to Garden Grove where you guys didn't have any money. You were looking at a lean Christmas, yeah,
2: lean.
1: and you
0: got a story here about Mikey who goes out and. I think he cut down, like you didn't even have a Christmas tree. The The deal was yeah. you guys were going to do no presents.
1: We were just going to have a nice dinner and, uh, we, we just started to get back on our feet and I had a deal fall apart on me at Christmas. And so my money's tied up and I can't get it out. And I just said, look, uh, we just moved into a house still in garden grove, but it was quite a, a step up. And, uh, Michael is one of those guys. He he just kind of okay. He's lame. plotting. He's plotting, <laughs> and uh, so we wake up and we walk out, and uh, there's this uh, Italian cypress sitting in a bucket of uh, uh, of dirt, and you put a little sparkly things on there. I, there might have even been some lights up. And, uh, and there's a little presents around it. And uh, we're all coming in. You know, sit down, sit down, you know. And he's giving us um, presents. And the presents were hilarious. Um, I still have the rocks he gave me. Uh, Sally kept the scarf that he got with those throwaways at the racetrack. And the kids got, like, fingernail clippers or little knives. And we just roared. It was just so funny in the way he presented them, you know. And uh, you're looking at your kids and you're thinking, these are strong kids, you know. uh, They get it and they just roll with with the disappointments. But it was a great Christmas. And then I remember when we're leaving the house, I don't know where we're going to go, but go out and I look at. Get in the car, and you look in the front of the house, <laughs> and it's that cypress. <laughs> so, you get two cypress on one side, you got a cypress a half on the other.
2: <laughs> and neighbors uh. are thinking, Well, they're
1: ever going to fix that, you know? And I, I it was, No, it's a memory. Yeah. I think they, it wasn't fixed until somebody else bought the house.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, and so, everyone's playing sports. Mikey ended up playing hockey. How do you get into hockey? That's not the Southern California sport. No,
1: but for him, uh, if it rolls, oh. anything that rolls or slides, it was just him. I don't know. He was like. Well, the first time he was on skates, it was like, I'm looking at this guy, he's jumping over stuff. He Once he starts moving, it's like in his head, well, maybe I can do this, or maybe I can do this. It's like when we got him a bike. Uh, next thing, he's building ramps, you know, seeing how high he can go. Ramps break, he crashes and burns, gets right back up and builds another ramp. And hockey, yeah, it, was, it surprised me, but he was still smaller than the other kids. And his edge was really uh, how fast he was on wheels. And uh, he just really liked the sport. He got his contact. But because he was on wheels, he uh, could really hit these guys too, and he was quick. So uh, if they hit him, he could come back, and he felt everything was equal. Uh, And he he loved the game, yeah.
0: And then he also played football as well.
1: Yeah, he loved football, but he was – you know, he just—he wasn't a big guy, but he had, you know, he's one of those guys had a lot of heart. Always working, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he took it really serious. No one was going to run past him. He was the defensive end. And uh, that was his territory. Even if he had to pull the guy's uh, face mask, he was not going to go anyplace. <laughs> I remember he did it, and he, he's double teamed. And I see his head reach out, grabs guy's face mask, <laughs> and I was sitting just right uh, uh, off in the bleachers. He could see me, and he looks at me like, <laughs>
0: <laughs> "You got to do what you got to do." Not on my side. Uh, you got a section in here. You say Michael's team was getting pummeled by their counterpart junior varsity team Which included some of the varsity players one by one the JV players on his team began to remove their helmets and quit Walking off the field in defeat and shame They were not willing to be humiliated any longer in front of their family or friends during the Garden Grove football scrimmage The clock sounded its horn loud horn for halftime and each team jogged to the respective locker rooms As George sat by his old 64 Gold Riviera. I love that
1: car. (laughs) And Michael ended up with it for a while.
0: (laughs) And waited for the game to resume. Michael walked past his father with barely a glance in his direction. George watched curiously as Michael moved around the front of the car and opened the passenger door to get in. George, confused as to why Michael is not headed back to the field, looked directly at him. What happened, Mikey? Why are you here? Michael looked up at his father. His whole demeanor ripe with disappointment as he fought back tears. Dad, they just quit. The referee canceled the game because too many of our players quit. Dad, why would they quit? We still had a chance. We could have won. Mikey, you guys were down by 50 points. (laughs) I know, Dad, but the game wasn't over yet. We had a chance. He hung his head trying to fathom what had just transpired as he quietly repeated to himself, they just quit. Quitting was not something the Montsors did. They were always taught to follow through.
1: Yeah, we were. I mean, I had, uh, when they wanted to play a sport, before I put them in that sport, we always had the same conversation. You join this team, you're you're here until the, game, the season's mm-hmm. over. Whether you like the coach, or whether you play or not play, you do not quit. So they were raised that way. You make that decision, because I wanted them as as children to understand they make these decisions, then they have to live by them. And there's just short little tests, but... It was important that they started understanding. You know, you just, on a whim, decide you want to play football. So uh, he was raised like you don't quit. And all those kids, it was was hard on them because they were just getting wasted. (laughs) I mean, there was no first downs. There was no uh, completed pass. They were just totally outclassed. But Michael always figures there's always a chance. (laughs) And if he would have got one touchdown, he would have felt like, we have our dignity, so that's he was just he did not like he didn't mind losing as much if he gave everything, mm-hmm. but just to lose that just wasn't Michael. He used to have a thing, he uh, bunk bed. He, he was on the bottom and Joe was uh, uh, on the top, and he, even on his uh, inside, when he woke up in the morning, there was a little message, you know, never quit, and he carried that for you know his whole life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. He was a believer in once you said it, then live with it. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Uh, You go on to say here, Michael's lion-hearted determination grew stronger as he grew older. He played as a defensive end for the Argonaut varsity football team while he was in high school and was known for being one of the hardest workers on the field. Asthma continued to challenge Michael, but he was not going to let it dictate how he lived. Sally remembers how Santa Ana winds coming in from the mountains each fall would affect Michael's breathing. One afternoon, she opened the door to his bedroom to find him wheezing. She asked him why he wasn't using his inhaler. I'm weaning myself off it, Mom. <laughs> Although unable to fully rid himself of the ailment, Michael would not let it stop him from accomplishing what he set out to achieve. So he's just freaking tough. He is. He's
1: very determined, and I think all the 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 way he was treated, you know, uh, when he was younger, bullies just they have a sense. There's the weak one. And he just made it his life not to be the weak uh, weak one. I mean, I remember when he was in the sixth grade, he told me, he says, it's going to be over. He says, this will stop. Oh, this is the bullying he's yeah. talking about? he says, this will stop. And uh, he just determined to get stronger. And even verbally, I mean, people didn't realize, if you know him— that his tongue was sharp mm. when he wasn't, uh, you know, as strong, because he would go the other way and he would embarrass them. I mean, he, he had a very good mind and uh, he would just trash them. And they know that whatever uh, they would do, he would take it. I've seen him take these hits, knowing he'd come back and say, "What happened?" And uh, you know, maybe his brother would say, "Hey, those guys." You know, went after Mike because he went after them verbally. And, you know, he would fight, but he was just outgunned. But he never would back down, even if he was little. And he had to pay, you know, all of them had to have uh, discipline. We had rules in the family. And if he wasn't buying the rule, he would literally just, okay, I'm I'll take the, the two days in my bedroom or whatever. And our bedroom, those bedrooms didn't have TVs and, and video games. But I never, never beef about it or anything. You just take his medicine. There you go. Yeah. yeah.
0: So he, he's playing football. How were his grades in high school?
1: Here's, here's Michael. I don't know. Michael, in the sixth grade, it was determined they had very high IQ. And uh, it was determined because we had a meeting, and uh, uh, the teacher says, he he just doesn't do anything. He ignores me, and he doesn't do his homework. And he goes and there. As a matter of fact, there's his backpack. He doesn't even take it home. And he goes and gets it, and he says, you might as well take this home. And and the backpack had all these papers in it. So he opens it up. The teacher opens it up, and he's looking at all the homework he did and the tests he took. And he goes, he goes, you know, I think your kid's really pretty smart. <laughs> and that's when uh, they start putting him into the, uh, to the higher classes. And he was fine with it. But then he, he got uh, towards the end of high school. He's bored. And I get a letter from the high school, a registered letter. It says, your son uh, has is all Fs and he's not going to graduate. And I bring him into the office and I say, um, you understand how this family works, right? <laughs> I have my job. You have your What's job. Wait, What's the office? This is in your house. You <laughs> yeah, have the office. Yeah, have this is
0: where office. counseling t- takes <laughs> place with the with the children. <laughs> well, I
1: spent a lot of time in there praying that I had some money in the bank. And you know, I just keep looking at it. No, it's still the same. Uh, and I says, you know how this works. I says, you have a job. And the job is uh, to get through school. That's your job. And... Uh, I said, you got straight Fs. They're telling me that you will not graduate. How do you think that's going to play out with me? And uh, I said, you know you won't be living here. You don't do your job. You don't live here. You're gone. And uh, he just smiles. (laughs) He says, don't worry, Dad. (laughs) I got this. And uh, boom. He turns it around. Straight A's. All the way up. And then... uh, he smiles and he goes, I told you I got it. There's something about him that uh, when he's bored, then he made it harder just to, you know, test himself. And the things he did uh, when he was young was always testing himself. He just, It was almost like, uh, since I had race it was like having a, a young horse that you didn't allow him to get out of the stall. And he just wanted to run and wanted to run. Michael wanted to run, but he couldn't. He just didn't. wasn't strong enough. And once he got
0: stronger, he just wanted to run, and he did. So, so he graduates from high school. What was his plan when he graduated from high school? Because he graduated in 99. Yeah.
1: And, and a couple years later.
0: Yeah. So what was he doing
1: his, in the meantime? His plan uh, was to go into the military, but— he wanted to have a good time before he went into the military, <laughs> <laughs> so we had a good time, and uh, then I, I remember telling him, uh, you know, the good time's over. Um, it's time for you to make a decision.
0: I was was Jim in the Marine Corps at this point, or had Jim already? You know, gone to the I Corps? can't
1: remember. I think Jim was in the Marines. Yeah, he okay. was in the Marines. Another one that uh, doesn't say anything to his dad. Uh, hey, Dad, uh, I'm, going, going to, I'm going to join the Marines. Go, what do you mean you're going to join the Marines? He goes, well, I'm going in tomorrow.
2: <laughs>
1: what? <laughs> and uh, I knew Michael was, was talking about going in. I had no idea uh, that that was his plan.
0: In the book it says that it sounds like you're the one that had kind of told him about the SEAL teams where he had asked you about
1: He'd it. He asked me about it, and uh, I remember because uh, we would drop guys off and, and we'd do practice things and being in the Marines would do with Navy guys, and then we had all, you know we had um, our recon guys, so we do a lot of the same things. You know, recon? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone forgot about recon. <laughs> Anyway, so he was fascinated with it. You know, like any young kid, he Mm -hmm. wanted to hear about these guys. I had no idea uh, what was going on in his head. And because he was so sickly, he's the last guy I thought that would be a seal. You know, and I always thought to myself, he's got a great mind, and um, he's going to be one of those eggheads, and I'm good with that. Uh, but his mind was uh, not thinking that way. And I was really kind of taken back when I found out uh, after he graduated from uh, Navy boot camp. His instructor told me. His instructor told you that he was going to try and be a SEAL? He says, you got a great son here. He goes, this guy is great, and uh, he's definitely SEAL material. And I went, what? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and seal is that material. the first time you you— Knew that he was going to try and go to Bud's, or he was going to Bud's? Yeah,
1: he talked about SEALs, but it never really registered that he was serious about that. And, uh, and, and you know, we teased him anyway because he went into the Navy because yeah. uh, we were all Marines, uh, whole family, <laughs> all the way back to World War II Marines. And, uh, and it was like uh, I was good with it, uh, Navy, but then the SEAL thing just caught me like— You know, and I still remember he had that funny smile. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he's in the Navy. Um, He ends up at Bud's. And Bud's is what it is. And what it is is freaking brutal. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to go to the book here. It was now late fall 2001. The days were shorter. The air was cooler. Cooler. Michael was exhausted and decided to head home for the weekend to get some much needed rest in the midst of vigorous training. A lot of people don't know this. When you're at BUDS, basic SEAL training, people think you get locked away on some island somewhere. No, you you basically work Monday through Friday and then weekends, you recover. Yeah. But if you want to recover by drinking, you can do it. Yeah. If you want to recover by laying in bed and, and uh, icing your knees, you can do that too. Yeah. It's kind of up to you. Uh, and... Michael decided he was gonna go home. So George knew something was wrong as soon as Michael returned home. Michael wasn't walking right and George, and as George looked down at his feet, he could see why. Michael's socks were bloody and Michael was miserable. Michael, what are you doing? You're not gonna make it like that. Dad, I'm not quitting. Michael, you can't even walk and your feet are a bloody mess. You're leaving footprints all over the kitchen floor. I'm not quitting. Michael bandaged up his feet as best he could and headed back to Coronado to prepare for training the following day. The bandages did little to keep the sand out of the lesions on his feet. And every step he took was like running sandpaper across the open sores, bringing excruciating pain. Both feet were an absolute mess, yet Michael pushed on. The pain continued to build and was not only draining him mentally, but rapidly slowed his pace, affecting his ability to perform the required evolutions. He was disgusted with what had begun to creep into his conscious thought. He hated to see weakness in others, but hated it even more in himself. With every pain-filled step, it became clearer. He was forced to acknowledge what he had tried to ignore, the reality that he would not be able to continue. It was the 24th hour of the first day of Hell Week, the third week of the six month pipeline, and regarded as the most challenging week of Bud's training cycle when students are expected to run upwards of 200 miles and are allowed to allowed only three to four hours of sleep the entire week. Michael stood up and did what he thought he would never do. He walked over to the notorious bell affixed to a pillar directly in front of the first phase office and rang it three times alerting the whole compound That he was finished Michael made a left face Walked achingly down the sidewalk That was already lined with helmets Of those who had not made it to this point When he reached the end He made one more left face Took off his helmet And placed it next to the others He had quit
1: Dang He was devastated I remember when he he told me, and his just—I mean, his eyes were just filled with tears. He just could not believe that he quit. He just couldn't believe it, and uh, it was—it was just so sad. And uh, I didn't even have words, you know. i, I kind of didn't want him to be a seal. Well, I didn't want him mm-hmm. to be a seal. But I knew how much it meant to him, especially at that moment. I just really didn't. I just I could remember how I, when they were kids, I would tell them, you know, it's when it's your defeat, and how do you come back from the defeat? That's what makes you the the man or the woman. Is the way you come back. And I couldn't even remember that. I was struck by he was just so sad. And so the next morning, uh, he's up making some breakfast and uh, he says, remember when you say, <laughs> <laughs> and I go, yeah. And he goes, yeah, I'm going to be a seal. And and then it began. Uh-huh. I mean, it just, he was back on track and
0: he was going to be a seal. So he ends up getting state. And again, uh, like the book has so many good details of all this. Uh, eventually, he ends up getting stationed in Italy yeah in Aci Treza and immediately and he 's with a couple other guys that are want that exactly. are in the same boat he is in yeah and um man, that program's tough <laughs> <laughs> uh so they began training they yeah. began getting ready um they 're swimming they 're running they 're uh cliff jumping um Getting into some of this stuff here. Uh, For Michael and his friends, they were determined to push themselves as hard as necessary to train their bodies for the rigors of buds. They were getting a second shot, and they knew they were not about to blow it. They would do whatever it took to be ready this time around. Michael's most traumatic experience thus far in life was ringing the bell and quitting buds, and he would not be satisfied without a second chance to prove to himself that he could do it. He told his younger brother, Joe, that this second time around, they would have to drag his dead body off the beach before he would quit. <laughs> and that does not surprise me, with Michael.
1: Uh, it scared his, you know, uh, you know Joe.
0: Like yeah, can, <laughs> that could be true, Dad. Uh, got some good stories in here about Italy. They're in Sicily. They got nightlife. Uh, Michael's buying vehicles. He buys a Russian truck. He buys a he buys a Lancia. You say this, uh, Michael also pursed a Lancia, an incredibly fast car with all-wheel drive and used to cruise it all throughout Italy. The higher the speed, the better, until one afternoon when he, when Ali, that's one of his buddies, got a call from Mike, he had crashed it racing an Audi. They were flying down the Sicily highway when Mike hit a wet spot and lost control. His Lancia spun and slammed directly into the concrete divider wall. Luckily, he wasn't hurt and was able to get it towed back to his home, but it was not looking good for the car. Ali drove over to Mike's apartment to see how he could help. First he saw the car, it was totaled. Then he saw Mike, beer in hand, steak on the grill, and not a care in the world. It was good while it lasted, Mike said with his signature smile. And that is Michael. <laughs> that is 100%. Uh, there's, I mean, this is just another – Mike got so many accidents in Italy, he opted to pay $200 a day for extra car rental insurance just to cover the shenanigans. He, li- he liked freaking vehicles and yeah. cars and motorcycles. That
1: might have been my fault. Uh, I had a motorcycle when I was a kid, and uh, I remember Sal always would get on, and then I would uh, drive a little crazy, and she'd reach up into my shirt and pull my chest hairs out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Mike – when he was little we had a 64 gto oh man yeah. and uh that thing uh from a dead stop you know or just it would just scream you know and mike was just a little guy and he'd hold on to the the handle over the glove box and you just go dad go <laughs> and i'd burn through those gears you know and fish tailing and he's just in heaven you know and then uh I would, we had this long on-ramp to the freeway where you could kind of see the freeway before you got on, and you had this long uh, ramp, and so I, he, he knew I could do it there, and I would, so i just burned through the, uh, through the gears, and the cars in and the, he can smell the smoke from the tires, and he's just a huge smile. Goes, Dad, we're going 100 miles an hour, you know? And it's like about half of that, like, <laughs> give or take 50, you know? And then be, but he just loved the acceleration, And I I didn't realize uh, that it would have such an effect because he loved fast stuff. (laughs) Yeah, and um, he just did. Yeah, including (laughs) Lancia's. Yeah, so (laughs) if if parents read this, it's a great book for your children except for, you know, that kids slow it down a little bit. That might have been a
0: mistake on my part. (laughs) Uh, Fast forward a little bit here. It says, as the two years came to an end as he inched closer to heading back to Coronado for a second shot at Bud's. Michael felt strong strong and ready. Michael still contended with his severe asthma, which caused him to be rarely without his inhaler. But he would not concede to this ailment in any shape or form. One afternoon, as Chris, that's another one of his buddies talks about, and Mike ran side by side on one of their last hard runs, Mike pushed himself harder and harder to beat his friend Chris. As Chris pulled ahead, it pissed off Mike He pissed off Mike, grabbed his inhaler, chucked it across the road, and sprinted until he beat Chris and finished the run. That was the last time Chris ever saw Mike use his inhaler. He didn't have room for weakness. It was all or nothing this time around.
1: (laughs) He was mentally ready
0: for buds. It was like, bring it. (laughs) Uh, it, it, I mean, and it sounds like his attitude going in, obviously, you know what to expect. You don't want to make that mistake, although – uh, one of my roommates was a a former uh, buds quitter, mm. and he was back again. And I was like, "Well, you know, he's probably gonna. He's a little older, you know. Yeah. Kind of. I, I was thinking, hey, you know, this guy's gonna be good to go. But sure enough, first night of Hell Week, he quit. So there's no, there's still yeah. no guarantee. It's it's what you change in your brain. Yeah, and
1: he was more prepared. I remember. I think the last thing I said to him when he left was, uh, "Watch the sand." because uh that really destroyed him he, he wasn't he just didn't take care of himself uh that first time around so um he was definitely determined he was in good shape and uh
0: mentally he was determined yeah um he he had a friend named Gabe Lynch yeah and uh, this kid was like a Oregon farm boy so you had like the California kid yeah Um, They had some pretty good experiences that they talk about in the book that you guys talk about in the book. It says uh, Gabe and Michael were both part of boat crew three They were close in height standing just around six foot one Gabe recalls how Mike was always one to brighten the mood of the guys during the often exhausting days of being beaten by (laughs) by the ocean surf while wet and sandy all day long Gabe was the slower runner between the two of them. And he remembers Mike hanging out in the back with him as they would push through their four mile timed runs. He would encourage Gabe, then sprint back up to the front and finish easily in the top tier of runners every time. That was the kind of guy Mike was, always looking out for his buddies. He could see who needed a word of encouragement or, or action of support, and would deliver it at just the right time. Sometimes that's all it took when a guy was delirious, running on a few hours of sleep for a, for days on end. Even though Michael had not yet made it and become part of the SEAL Brotherhood, Brotherhood itself was something he already understood in the depths of his core. He was not going to let his friends down. And he was always that way.
1: Yeah, when he was a little kid, when, when uh, we were living in that uh, uh, other uh, neighborhood, it was pretty poor. It wasn't uncommon for him to take... Uh, Christmas gifts and give them away to his friends. I'd see his friends playing with the gifts. If you were his friend, and, and if you speak to uh, his friends, they will say that uh, he truly was a true friend and he was always on their side, and that's just the way he was. So, the brotherhood mm-hmm. was perfect for Michael. It was
0: a perfect place. Yeah. <clears> the <throat> quick scene from Hell Week. <laughs> uh, just because this <laughs> just. This sounded like Mikey, man. Uh, with paddles in hand, they begin uh, to row in unison. They had just taken the first few strokes in an evolution aptly named around the world, which enti- entails paddling their small boats from San Diego Bay north through the channel around the tip of Coronado and back to Bud's Beach and staggering 13 miles. As they paddled, Gabe couldn't hold back any longer. He started to doze off. And without missing a beat, Michael shouted over to him from his side of the boat, hey, man, I love you, bro, but you need to wake up. <laughs> That's all it took for you, to jar Gabe back to consciousness and help him focus. Uh they end up securing Hell Week. They lost about seventy-five percent of their people. Obviously, Michael made it. Um got Ray, It's uh it's just great Ray Baviera, another guy from from tasking to Bruiser was a there was the LPO of their buds class. Um They're getting ready to go out to San Clemente Island, which is the third phase of training. It's the last phase of training. And before going out there, Michael planned a a little boat trip. And again, again, I'm going to fast forward to this part just because it's it's funny to read about Michael being an avid adventurer. had planned a spearfishing trip and brought Gabe and another buddy of theirs. Chris, Chris Kimbrell from their buds class along for the weekend. Gabe knew how to spearfish like Mike and they were naturals in the water. But for Chris, a Midwest landlocked boy, this escapade was not his forte. He was ready to go for it though and couldn't wait to see what the picturesque island had to offer. Chris was one of the first all suited up and couldn't wait to get going. Before Gabe had even dropped the anchor, Chris jumped in the water to see what he could find. Moments later, he burst through the surface, proudly holding up his spear. There on the end of his six-foot Hawaiian sling flopped a beautiful orange fish. Chris yelled in triumph. Michael immediately dove to the water tackling Chris as he pulled the spear from his hand. That's a, that's a Garibaldi, the state fish of California. It's super illegal to hunt, dude. Michael yelled at Chris. There were other fishing boats all around. Anyone could have seen the fish that Chris had on the end of his fi- uh, sling. Michael quickly snatched the fish from the tip of the spear and dove to the bottom. He found a large rock and wish. so that's just like classic poor Chris, 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 Crimmel, uh, Chris, 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 um, who's, you know, a landlocked guy, you know. know, he didn't know. He's like, <laughs> look what I got. Yeah. This Garibaldi are everywhere. You see him. You're like, Oh, this is easy hunting. <laughs> oh, it's classic. Um, Third phase, the last remaining block, again, fast forwarded, the last block before graduating buds entailed instruction on seal weapons and tactics lasting around eight to 10 weeks. The students covered land navigation, land warfare, ambushes and raids, patrolling, weapons handling and marksmanship and demolition. Michael and his classmates were on San Clemente Island focusing specifically on raids, ambushes and demolition. San Clemente Island is a rocky Volcanic island off the coast of California with hardly any trees lots of cactus no f- natural fresh water full of caves and caverns Formed by gas bubbles in the lava when the island was molten mass as the men focused specifically on ambushes and raids Ray Baviera who continued as Michael's squad LPO through third phase recalls how Michael would find a way to make light Throughout the arduous and non evolutions bringing humor to any situation brightening anyone's move mood and that's something that everybody, everybody says that about Mike. Yeah. Like no matter what's going on, he's just going to be sitting there, uh, putting everybody back in a good mood.
1: Yeah, he thought it was actually important, uh, especially if people are getting stressed out, like in Buds. Mm-hmm. You can see it on their faces. And he thought, you know, he's seeing these guys are going on tilt, you know, and, uh, you know, I our family does that. You know, a little quip, this and that, you know, and um, he's always done that when things get real serious and it kind
0: of brings people down. Um, <clears throat> so it says third phase was coming to close just a few weeks later. And as the men prepared to graduate, they were discussing what gift to give the command in their memory. They all wanted to leave something in their name from Bud's class 250 that was immovable and unique. They decided to give basic training command an enormous boulder with their names engraved upon it. Now the class had to figure out how to track down a boulder, engrave it, and have it delivered to the command. Ray's wife, Maria, was back home in San Diego and took care of the logistics. What began as an idea quickly escalated into a four-ton boulder that would have to be delivered by a crane who would end up costing $7,000 in change. Each guy was given the option to back out after the final pricing was determined, and not one guy did, they were all in this together. What the final gift became was something none of the Bud students would forget, and their memory forever lives on etched into the boulder that was engraved with the following words, the actions of the few dictate the fate of many by Alexander the Great, and it also says, the secret to Buds is underneath this rock. So Buds classes give gifts to Buds, and depending on the class and what they do, some of the, some of the gifts are pretty awesome, some of them are pretty lame. Yeah. Uh, I think my gas- class gave a pretty lame. <laughs> we gave a po- like a little po- a speaking podium.
1: Beautiful.
0: Yeah. The story behind it was one of the instructors was up at the podium talking to us. Yeah. And as he was talking to us, he got mad and he smashed his hands down on uh, the podium. And the thing like exploded. It like broke apart in all yeah. these pieces and he started yelling and we all go hit the surf. And so we like had this special one made. And the funny start part about that story is years later, I. I I saw that guy, the guy that had smashed his podium and it exploded like he was the Incredible Hulk. And I said, he was a Master Chief by this time. And I go, hey Master Chief. He's like, hmm. And I go, when, because he was a hard dude. I go, when my class was going through and you were the dive phase chief, I said, you smashed your hands on this podium and it like exploded. I said, was that like a a set, uh, was like a trick thing? And he looks at me and he goes, negative. It was oak, reinforced. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Uh, so people give these various different gifts and people give, st- some, some stuff's really cool. Yeah. Probably the most famous one is the, the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's a life-size statue of the creature, the Black yeah. Lagoon, and it says so you want to be a frogman, a little sign hung <laughs> on it. But this was an awesome gift. It's this massive freaking rock. Yeah,
1: it's going to be there for a while. Oh, It's yeah. not going
0: anywhere. And so that's what they gave. Um, I uh, didn't
1: see that uh, until uh, Ray showed it, Jimmy. We uh, were invited to watch uh, Hell Week with uh, the seals. We watched it from on top of uh, a roof on one of the buildings and then... I'm so sorry for those guys. It was like those poor guys. It's, people should just see that. knowing these guys are doing it because they want to do it. It's just amazing what they go through. But after after that, then uh, he showed me the rock. I knew it was there, but I never really, you know. I just yeah, there's a rock, you know. And then he went over and showed me, and um, and it was nice, and I I could see where. They 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 were rubbing on the names, and mm-hmm. the, obviously they were rubbing a lot on Michael. So it was kind of nice.
0: No, it's yeah. awesome, and it's in a really prominent spot. It's like yeah. as you as you leave the compound to go to the beach or come back, you yeah, go right you by the rock. It,
1: yeah.
0: uh, <sighs> Michael graduated buds on September second, two thousand four. Back on Coronado Island, California, the graduation day was memorable for all. The men stood proudly in their creen- clean, crisp dressed uniforms, and each waited in anticipation for their name to be called. Across the compound, a giant crane labored with a four-ton boulder, <laughs> carefully placing a large rock in the much deliberated position where its weight could not would not crush the buried utilities below yeah. it.
2: <laughs> a little tricky.
0: Michael's parents, George and Sally, as well as three siblings, Jim, Sarah and Joe. We're in attendance to celebrate the achievement. George recalls the smile on Michael's face as he walked up to embrace him following the ceremony. He had this look on his eyes that seemed to say to me, Dad, I hope you didn't doubt me, I told you. I was gonna do this and I did it, I told you so. I loved seeing him like that, it gave me so much joy. I never wanted him to join the SEALs, but I was so proud to be proved wrong by my son.
1: I love it when my kids uh, prove me wrong, because it's kind of a challenge. I say, I don't think you can really do that. I, mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you could do that. And I love it when they come to me and say, "I did it," uh-huh. and you don't know nothing. <laughs> and I, I mean, they, I'm sure they catch on. But to see my kids stick to something, all of them, and then they accomplish it, it's wow. just, you know, you're yeah, dead. yeah, I mean, you feel great, yeah.
0: How did you feel when he got through Hell Week the second time? You must have been like, okay, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was funny.
1: I. I kind of, his attitude, I really would have been surprised if he didn't. Because he had these friends, too. And once he makes these friendships, um, he's going to be with them and push them through. Mm -hmm. So uh, I just, I I really, I would have been more surprised if he didn't make it.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's the wild thing. I mean, you start out with a couple hundred kids in your class. They're quitting so fast that. They're just they're, it. You don't even know what's happening. Yeah, and and so you got to be a little bit careful because if you don't, if you get to know someone kind of while you're there, and all of a sudden they quit, okay, yeah, that all of a sudden you go, oh, I'm alone. So for him to have some good friends rolling in there is yeah. definitely nice. And yeah, got another guy here, Michael and Z went through all of BUDS together. They gra- they graduated BUDS, basic airborne SEAL qualification training, now assigned to SEAL Team 3, Z to Echo Platoon and Mike to Delta Platoon. The weeks were busy training and the weekends were spent riding their bikes, and that's motorcycles by the way, chasing girls, hanging out with the guys. After a day of riding, they'd often come back to connect and unwind at Bar Dynamite, a small bar in Mission Bay where they'd grab drinks with friends, including Gabe and other freshly minted and another freshly minted seal, Tommy D. Mike was Mike was living life to the fullest. He was renting this house in Mission Bay while the new guys like myself lived in one small bedroom small one bedroom apartment, said Z, laughing. A motorcycle and a stellar pal. Had were not the only things Michael set his sights on. He was eyeing his next car, and he knew exactly what he wanted. Just received a contract bonus that he used to buy a silver 2004 Corvette Z. Zero six. Yeah. <laughs> Michael could never be a financial advisor. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the classic thing I tell guys not to do when they get their bonus. I used to be like, hey, listen, don't go buy a Corvette. Don't go buy a Ford 350 Super Duty Harley Davidson. Don't, don't do that. No. It's hard to talk about. I know. It. <laughs> I know. Especially with the
1: junkers that Mike had. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, so he's got that. Uh, Mike was living the dream in Southern California but he also understood his team was on short fuse to surge into combat areas in the Middle East. He knew the coming months would include a fire hose of information and intense training as platoon was going to war and how fast he learned and integrated into platoon and his role could mean all the difference.
1: Yeah, he took that real serious. When he was home, he was studying. Mm-hmm. He definitely uh, he got to the point where I, I do not want to make a mistake. I mean, it was like he really wanted to make sure that, he was on it
0: yeah and and it was so long ago for me like when you're a new guy there is so much it's just stuff to know and you don't want to make a mistake everyone's watching you and you just want to do good and you're gonna be counted on you know these guys are gonna be counting on you so uh, and we also had a condensed workup because at the time the war was hot and heavy. This is now two thousand five, going into two thousand six. The used to be eighteen months to train and get ready to go on deployment. Well, for us it was six months, like or sorry, twelve months. Boom, and you're out the door. So they it was everything was compressed and there was a lot of stuff being being forced down the throats of everybody. And uh Yeah, you there's a there's a story in here about the the Roger that which which, uh, <laughs> so I'm I'm talking to the new guys, and it was a particular block of training where it's close quarters combat, the instructors are, it's live fire and close quarters, which means you're shooting right next to guys, right, you know, you're two feet from someone, you're shooting a f- 12 inches off their muzzle, it is tight quarters, it's super dangerous, and so you gotta be heads up, and the instructors have to be really hard to make sure that you don't mess anything up. And so, I had took the new guys and said, listen, when you're going through this block of training, those instructors tell you something, your response is, roger that. I don't wanna hear like, well, I I was thinking this, or I could've done, what I didn't see, no, you don't say any of that. When the instructors talk to you, you say, roger that. And so, we're going through this training, and as we're going through this training, you know, I'm friends with all the instructors, because all the instructors are like, we're all friends, but the new guys don't really know them that well. But finally, one of the instructors, (laughs) who's a good guy, is at Master Chief, he comes up. He goes. He goes. Hey, Jocko, what's up with this Monsoor guy? And I was kind of. I didn't really know right. something, something was wrong. And I go, w- What do you mean, M- Mikey's? You know, he's good to go. He's like, Well, what's up with his attitude? And I go. What do you mean? What's wrong with his attitude? And he goes, every time I tell him something, or one of the instructors tell him something, all he does is look up up at us and say, Roger that. That's all he (laughs) says. And I go, hey bro, I told him that's all he's supposed to say and he's just (laughs) following that to a T. That's what he's doing.
1: And Uh, when he would say that, uh, the guys, that he's with are like kind of smirking like no one knew
0: if he was a smart ass or he's just following your orders that's a, I'll tell you so here's another similar story we're you were in the humvees and this, we're going through the block of training with humvees and the the gunners call out you know like clear right like you come up to an intersection and the gunners which is Mikey call out clear right or clear left and, you know, Mikey's up there and I'm, I'm, the, I'm the vehicle commander. So I'm sitting in the, in the passenger seat and he's up there. And like we get to our for the first time doing it. And we come up to an intersection and he's like, clear right. I could barely hear him, you know. And I look down at him or I look up and I kind of hit him on the leg. I was like, hey, man, you got to sound off. And he's like, he goes, Roger that. <laughs> Next intersection, we pull up to it. And he's like, clear right, super overcompensating and I, and I thought to myself hold on a second yeah <laughs> is he being a wise ass or and then we pulled the next intersection clear right and, and here's that's the thing he, he wasn't being a wise ass he was I told him to freaking sound off if you want it you will get it I got it <laughs> but that's but that was uh you know that attitude that Roger that attitude man that's um that that was it. You know, that was he was gonna he was gonna get it done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <sighs> one of the first blocks of training workup was land warfare out at Nyland, California by the Salton Sea with a hundred and seven degree summer average. It's a scorching place to train, and sure enough, we were out there in the summertime. This combined with a schedule Rocky Mountain terrain scarred with washes makes the literal and figurative crucible of the workup. Here's where the platoon will work on the tactics, techniques, and procedures of fighting in open terrain as well as demolitions, rockets, and mortars, and all the different small arms weapon systems of the SEAL arsenal. A platoon is normally made up of 16 to 20 operators, each having a specific role to include snipers, preachers, communicators, and automatic weapons gunners to name a few. Although specialized within the platoon, each man is still responsible to be proficient at the other jobs. Michael and the other new guys could not wait to jump right in and get started. Michael caught on very quickly, especially with his automatic weapon, the Mark 48. Each of the new guys were being watched closely by the older men in the platoon. His LPO, Doug Wallace, remembers how that even though Michael was quickly picking up on the tactics and performing all tasks efficiently and without complaint, it was always with humility and a willingness to learn more. Misery loves company and Nyland is a block where there's many reasons to complain of our intense conditions. Mike never did once, not one time. It showed great character and understanding on his part, especially for a new guy, Doug said. And then there's another section here. So it's, there's like a little gang mentality going on and part of it is like you're gonna fight each other sometimes. Yeah. So they're having some boxing matches, and yeah. bo- I'm using that term very loosely. Yeah, <laughs> this they're is, not, <laughs> professionals. <laughs> These <are> not professionals. They're not professionals. But they'll set up like a tournament, and generally or oftentimes it's just the new guys have to fight each other. Um, so this is going down, and it says, it says here, it came down to Mike, the last standing new guy from Delta Platoon, so in tasking to prove there's two, two platoons, Charlie and Delta. It came down to the last standing new guy in Delta, which was Mike versus Kevin Lace the final remaining new guy in Charlie. Kevin was huge, 225 pound tower of muscle who loomed over most team guys at a height of six foot three. Mike was much smaller and more slender, but he wouldn't give up. He was a lean, scrappy dude, recalled Kevin. I remember hitting him as hard as I could, but there was no shaking him. We had no boxing form. We were street fighting at that point with boxing gloves on. I looked at him and it seemed as if his eyes were crossed and I continued to hit him over and over again, but he wouldn't stop. He returned blow after blow right back. We got so into it that I'm sure we were both seeing red, but each of us refused to back down. Both platoons cheered and taunted as each man hit the other over and over again, clad in only their boots and camo pants. The two men continued to brawl. Neither could defeat the other. And in the end, the older men called it a tie. Kevin had hugged Mike. Once they stopped and cooled down, you're a tough son of a bitch. Mike, Kevin said laughing. Yeah. And and Kevin Lace is just like a giant dude thick. And uh, (laughs) there's Mikey And, and Mikey, he got jacked later, but at this point, just coming out of buds, he was pretty lean still. Yeah, even though oh, yeah, he was yeah.
1: There wasn't uh, he wasn't a real big guy when he just got out. He was definitely lean though. Yeah, and uh, endurance wise, guy could go for a long time. But mentally, I'm not surprised that he hung in there because he went through those mental things as a kid. People messing with him and stuff. Mentally, he was just really very strong.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. So we uh, that's what we're doing. It, we're going through this workup. We do land warfare, we do mobility, we do close quarters combat, we do urban warfare at Fort Knox, or we used to do it at Fort Knox. We do diving, we do jumping, we do a bunch of stuff back in San Diego, and and we're working hard. That's what we're doing. And we actually, at the beginning of our training cycle, we, as Task Unit Bruiser, didn't know where we were deploying to. No because there was three task units one of them had already been designated to go to Iraq because they went to the Pacific the last time so it was between my task unit and another task unit to see who was going to go to Iraq of course everybody wants to go to Iraq everybody wants to go fight the other one the other platoon's going to do a different mission but it's not fighting it was the
1: Philippines, I think. It was. Because I said to Mike, I says, well, maybe you get lucky and go to the Philippines. He looked at me like, you poor pathetic old man. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, no one wants to go yeah. to, to the Philippines. No one wants to go to the Southeast Asia. Everyone wants to go to Iraq. Um, and it's a, basically a, the commanding officer is going to pick. And we, we pushed hard. And we were supposed to go to Baghdad. Our original deployment was to go to Baghdad, and there was a mission in Baghdad that was working directly with this group called the Iraqi Counterterrorism Force, the ICTF. Iraqi counter these are local, I mean Iraqi guys, and they had been really well trained. They're probably the best well the best trained of all Iraqi troops. They had really nice gear, they had uniforms, like they had everything. Yeah. And there was a uh, there was a group of SEALs with them, and there was a group of Army. Army Special Forces guys, all working with these Iraqis. And I actually went on a pre-deployment site survey, we call it. I went, before we went on deployment, to go and meet up with those guys, see what the mission was like, get a heads up on everything. Because that's where we were going, going to Baghdad. So I come back from that. We're prepared. We know what our mission is. And everyone goes on pre-deployment leave. So everyone goes you know, like, hey, we're okay, we're going on deployment soon. And that's when we got the whole deployment changed around. And my commanding officer calls me in. He's like, hey, you're not, you guys aren't going to Baghdad anymore. You guys are going to go to Ramadi. And, well, Ramadi, we knew Ramadi was the worst place in Iraq. And everybody wanted to go there. Just like everyone wanted to go to Iraq. Well, everyone wanted to go to Ramadi. I mean, the commanding officer said it to me like, I was going to be sad. Now the, 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 the mission in Baghdad was a cool mission too. Mm. And it was kind of all set up and running. So it was kind of, is like ready made, like, you know what you're going to be doing. Ramadi was kind of the wild West still. But when he, he said it to me, he was making it seem like he needed to convince me that, Hey, this is what, this is what's going to happen. You know, is, are you okay with that? And I was like, I realized the kind of the tone of his voice, I kinda of like, Well, you know, sir, I'm gonna need some more people, I'm gonna need some more gear. We got some stuff <laughs> out of play <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but he was great. And and then we reshuffled and um, we reshuffled and got ready to go. And um, I don't even I don't think I even I think I don't even think we notified the guys because everyone was on leave. And you couldn't tell them like on an, in a on a non secure net net like hey we're going to Ramadi now like you, it's classified. So then they everyone came back. We had another week or whatever. Um, it's like hey everyone we're not going to Baghdad anymore. We're going to Ramadi, um, and the guys were ecstatic. They're ecstatic. Uh and this, some of the stuff you cover in the book Sarah and Sally come down to help Mikey pack up all of this stuff uh, he, he takes he takes his mom for a little ride in the Corvette gotta read about that
1: one uh, he did it on the motorcycle too oh. but she was used to the bike with me on, when I used to take her on my bike so he was kind of disappointed cause she says, she didn't no, get scared no she goes, that was a nice ride Mikey <laughs> <laughs>
0: have, have a nice day and be careful <laughs> Uh, He goes up to Garden Grove, um, spend the last couple days up there, and I'm going to read this. uh, The time had come. George and Michael awoke early in the morning and drove back down the I-5 south to San Diego. The trip seemed to pass much faster than either would have liked. Once they arrived in Coronado, George gave his son a big final hug as he said goodbye with a kiss on the cheek. George felt a knot deep down in his stomach, but he refused to acknowledge it. The idea that this could be the last time he saw his son was not something he wanted to think about. As George drove home, he recalled an evening with his son from two weeks prior. He had lit up a Fuente cigar for Michael and himself on their front porch. They sat together in silence amid the cool air under the dark sky while smoke slowly drifted in the light breeze. George's voice broke the silence to address what they were both thinking. Mikey, what if something happens to you? It's not exactly a walk in the park over in Ramadi right now. Please don't be a hero. Just do your job. Dad, no matter what happens, I have no regrets. This reassurance from Michael helped, but George still did not want Mike to go. As a Marine vet, George saw firsthand what Ward did to all of those involved, and he despised it. He knew it was unforgiving and brutal and how it could degrade and break the spirit. He also knew that Mike had been trained well by men who understood what he could be facing. This brought some consolation to George. As they finished their cigars together that night, George and Mike, George looked at Mike and the man he had become. He was so proud of him from a determined little boy who fought against the injustice of bullies and his own physical weakness of asthma. He persevered and overcame failure, adversity, and blocks of training he despised, such as free fall parachuting and communication school, all with focused conviction and often a mischievous smile on his face.
1: He uh, <clears throat> he definitely uh, surprised me at that at that age his maturity and he knew who he was. Um, he talked to kids at his age in their early twenties and stuff like that, and they're still lost. He had his morals, he had his beliefs. He's pretty rock solid. And if there was things that he didn't like, I remember, like, jumping out of the planes. Mm-hmm. I used to do that, too. And uh, he talked to me about it. And then uh, he says, yeah, I don't like this. I don't like it at all. And he says when he came back, he planned on just doing that. Mm-hmm. Because anything <clears> that he was afraid of, he would just keep doing it and doing it till he owned it. And that's just the way he was. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And he didn't like communication school. No, it was hard. And he was studying all the time and he says, God, I can't screw this up. Yeah. yeah.
0: Going to the book. Mike loaded up his gear and followed his teammates to the waiting C 17 aircraft. The C 17 multipurpose aircraft can be configured for transport of troops, cargo, or a combination of both this last configuration is often how Special Operations Unit traveled due to the small footprint and nature of their mission sets. TU Bruiser was no exception, and as soon as the aircraft was at altitude, Michael and his friends broke out their nylon hammocks and ground pads and settled in for the long flight. Tasking a Bruiser landed at Alta Airport in Iraq, where they began to prepare for a short flight west to Ramadi. After the C-17 was unloaded, each operator opened his war box and donned his combat equipment. Michael had done this hundreds of times throughout workup and his prior training trips. This time was different. This was not training. His enemy was now hardened warfighters fighters whose will and resolve would be used to exploit weakness in order to win the war. <clears throat> it Says here, in the spring of 2006, the Battle of Ramadi was just beginning and it was already intense. The city was arguably the epicenter was inarguably the epicenter of the insurgency in Iraq and known throughout the area as the most dangerous city in the world, wrote Leif Bab and the officer in command of Charlie Platoon Task Unit Bruiser. The Al Qaeda leader in Iraq, Abu Musab Zarqawi, declared during that time that Ramadi would be the capital of his envisioned Islamic caliphate in Iraq. Insurgents controlled over two-thirds of the city itself, and certain areas were nearly impenetrable to United States and Iraqi security forces. U.S. Marines and Army soldiers that were currently over there battled continually with large groups of well-armed and well-organized enemy fighters. So far, 93 U.S. service members had been killed in action, and hundreds more were wounded in nearly 15 months of fighting.
1: You remember uh Michael Fuente, I think his yep. name was. Yeah. He was telling me that uh the media would not even cover that. Yep. He was the only guy, he says they were just blowing those guys away and nobody would go.
0: The media. So my previous deployment was in Baghdad. Oh. There was like hotels yeah. with CNN and you know all the news They're all set them. up. Yeah. Ramadi? There wasn't anybody. No. There wasn't anybody. And you know, I just, I just had a guy on the podcast named David Bellavia. He's a Medal of Honor recipient from Fallujah. Um, he was in the, the second Battle of Fallujah when the Marines pushed through. Yeah. And he, he's one of the few people that did go to Ramadi as a, report, as a journalist. And we're sitting here. I mean, I, you know his story. You know about the second Battle of Fallujah. Yeah. It, it was a brutal fighting. And David Bellavia sits here and, and says, oh, Ramadi was way worse, <laughs> which I look. I'm not trying to compare the two. No, but they Feluja, were both. Yeah, Feluja, but they I were remember both that story, yeah.
1: those stories. Yeah, I definitely. I felt so bad for those Marines, you know. And then uh, well, Ramadi, like I,
0: yeah.
1: I ju- uh, Michael would tell me that uh, he told the family that he was just teaching the guys how to march. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but uh, we could uh, see the news every once in a while, you know, or when uh, when uh, his, the pictures came out on the internet, you know, uh, Fu- uh, Fuente, when he had those uh, pictures out, he was right. out there taking pictures, and and we saw him on the internet, and it's like, is um, that Mikey? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that doesn't look like you're training people how to march.
1: Yeah, I don't see anybody marching. Not. Other than some guys, then they're not marching. (laughs) They're running weapons out. (laughs)
2: Yeah,
0: (sighs) yeah. I mean, so it was basically on as soon as we got there. You know, the one of the indicators of that was the couple days after. So I'd I'd already been there for a little while with a few of the guys. Just we were we got there before the rest of the tasking it. But as soon as the whole tasking was there, within a day, I think it was like the night they got there. We had like a little attack on our base, and we end up the whole freaking task units on the roof of our building lighting up and (laughs) (laughs) engaging, you know, the enemy fighters out there. And it was like, okay, that's what it is. Um, That's how it's going to be. Almost within a couple days of being there, I was going to meet the brigade commander, a guy named Colonel Gronsky. And I was literally walking in to meet him. And as I'm walking in to meet him, we had already put out a sniper overwatch position. And Tony Afrati, the Charlie platoon chief, had shot and killed an IED and placer in an area where the Marines had just hit a big IED and lost a bunch of guys. And as soon as that happened, Colonel Gronsky looked at me. I mean, so that's how I meet him. He says... I think your guys just killed a, an ID in place where I just lost Marines. Hey, roger that, sir. He says, we need you out in Eastern Ramadi. A place called the Malab, out Corregidor. And I said, roger that, you know? Um, and that's what we did as soon as, so as soon as I get back, we plan, all right, well, they need us in Eastern Ramadi. And I took a probably two thirds of the task unit over to Camp Corregidor, where the first, the 506 is. Again, as soon as we get, we've be, been on the ground for like a couple days. Now maybe it's been like six days and we're over there. We get to Camp Corregidor. The snipers are like, hey, we, can we get in the towers? Because there's towers around yeah. Camp Corregidor. I'm like, absolutely. Tell the Army guys, are you, are you good with us putting snipers? Colonel Colonel Clark said, absolutely. Yeah. They start killing guys almost immediately. Um, enemy rocket teams, mortar teams, IED emplacers. Um. And at the same time, where we're out at Camp Corregidor for a couple days, the living conditions are terrible out living there. Living the life. <laughs> it was like <laughs> dirt floors, there's mosquitoes. Uh, you know, they're getting mortared, indirect fire on a regular basis. Just, just, it was just freaking horrible. No showers, just, it was horrible. And so we do this initial mission out there, and we come back to the bigger base and the Army's like, hey, th- thank you for coming. Can, can, we, can you keep working with us? As a matter of fact, they a company commander. These guys went out on patrol, and this company commander, with, a comp- with an Army company commander, he comes back after his first patrol with my guys, and I walk with him to the battalion commander, and he tells the battalion commander, I don't want to do another patrol without SEALs with me. You I want SEALs on every patrol. So Colonel Clark's looking at me like, hey, well, can you get some guys out here? I said, let me sort it out. So now I'm talking to Seth and, you know, Seth's like, hey, I want to pick the guys to, to go back out there. Because I, however it all shook out, Seth had the, had, was the opportune guy or the, the he had the, the, Leif had already been assigned a guy. This guy had been, already been assigned Iraqi troops to work with. Another guy had been assigned Iraqi troops with, to work with. I think Seth's, the, the Iraqi troops Seth was supposed to work with originally quit. Like they didn't show up. And so Seth was the guy that had the, ki- the capacity. So I said, all right, you're going to go out to con- Camp Corregidor. And he says, I just want to pick the guys I want to take. And I said, hey, man, it, sh- it sucks out there. <laughs> I said, how about we do this? Let's put a volunteer list up. And if anybody wants to go back out there, then, then you can get volunteers. That way you're not forcing it down their throats. And Seth's like, all right. So bring the task unit together. And I'm like, all right, guys. You you all just came back from Camp Corregidor. We're going to send an element out there for deployment. All I can tell you is it's going to suck. The living conditions are awful. The, the, The level of violence is extremely high, as you all saw. And if you want to go back there, then put your name on this list on the whiteboard. And I walked out of the room and I came back 15 minutes later and everybody's name was on the list, including Michael's. Which meant that Seth got what he wanted, which yep. was he just got to pick his guys. Yeah. And um Mikey was the was was for the guys, there's no question he was going with Seth.
1: Yeah, that that would that would have surprised me if he didn't.
0: Yeah. There was a there was a, you know, uh Seth and Tommy D and Mikey were real tight. So I knew that those three were going to stick together.
1: Though so he didn't care. Uh, Seth was a little shocked at uh, Michael's decorating. I remember when he got back, he was telling me about his, <laughs> his pad. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's the good news. Is The yeah. good news is once they got over there and settled in, yeah. and we'll get to that part, but they eventually squared away, which yeah. Seals are really good at. Seals good at, we got a, some rough living. Up, we'll yeah. fix it up. Yeah. Uh, but that, but so they end up taking this small element of guys out there to go to camp, camp Corregidor, move in there, working with the first of the 506, the, the band of brothers, which was awesome. And they get settled into this operational tempo and settled into really what it is that they're going to be doing there. Um, and I'll just, example of this. Um, they get settled into what they're doing there get settled into the combat operations and real quickly we go to the book here the army captain sat peacefully in silence in one of the only places set apart from the chaos and violence that was now Ramadi Iraq he was a little old for the rank of captain but that was not uncommon for a person with his specific duties in the military he had spent years in formation and training and was now here in the thick of battle in Ramadi The quiet was broken by a firm knock at the door. The man rose from his seat and moved to receive it. He opened the door to find a tall, brown-eyed, dark-haired young man patiently waiting. Are you a Catholic priest? I am, replied Father Halliday. Nice to meet you. I am a Catholic, and my name is Michael Monsor. I'd like to go to confession. Father Halliday grabbed his stole and motioned Michael to follow him. Father Halliday was 40 years old at the time of his deployment to Ramadi and was an army chaplain with the first of the 506. His main mission was to assist the soldiers of Camp Corregidor to worship according to their own religion and preference, but was an ordained Catholic priest and was happy to oblige Michael's request for confession. They sat down in the makeshift chapel. Michael had just arrived in Ramadi, and Father Halliday understood well the situation the men were facing on a daily basis. He thought it showed significant religious formation and conviction for Michael to seek him out after only recently arriving in Ramadi. Yeah,
1: Michael, uh, he took his face serious, and he also, I mean, he knew he was in a place where uh, he could, loses his life and he wanted to be prepared everywhere spiritually physically mentally
0: yeah and the i mean the fighting was it was sustained urban combat and um i i mean guys were getting wounded or killed just about every day and and the first of the 506 i mean charlie company the first of the 506 who mikey spent a lot of time working with They had had like a third of their company casualties in four or five months. So they, fifty guys, they were down. Not all of them were killed, but it was, it was, it it, it was war.
1: Yeah. Well, when we were in Fort Campbell, and uh, their commander brought in some of the guys that worked with Michael. In their stories, you know, and it's like you start realizing how many people they did lose uh, and uh, just how tough it was. And I remember Sally breaking down, uh, hearing some of those stories and thinking about Michael. So it was, uh, people just don't get it, how tough it was over there.
0: Some of what they were experiencing here. They were in the middle of intense firefights on almost daily basis. The operating tempo they were facing required hyper focus, and the guys, completely undeterred, stepped up and went to work. We asked a lot of our guys, especially with the numbers of missions we were conducting, while facing extreme heat, dehydration, and exhaustion. It didn't phase them. They all stepped up and performed. Mike Sorelli said, There were army. And marine units also stationed in Ramadi that the SEALs were providing assistance to, and one of the large army battalions being the first of the 506. This was the descendant from the Band of Brothers from World War II. The battalion was huge and led by Lieutenant Colonel Ron Clark. His men were professional, talented, and worked incredibly well with the SEALs. Michael's troop commander, Lieutenant Commander Jocko Willink, had instructed his men to use Army to use the Army's uniform, a tri-color gray digital pattern called Army Combat Uniform, or ACUs. It was very different from the tricolored desert Naval Special Warfare uniform. The men wore it and even shaved their heads to match their Army brethren. This, was not on, this not only increased the cohesion of the two units, but also had a very practical purpose. By blending in with the Army unit, the SEALs did not stand out as Special Forces. The enemy had begun to target soldiers that looked or dressed differently than the average. So that's why when people see pictures of that element they're wearing, they're wearing army uniforms. Um, that's what it is. They wanted to blend in. Yeah. And wanted to not stand out and wanted to form a relationship with the army. You know, there's just, just you know, sometimes in special operations, you know, you can wear all this Gucci gear and it's like you're trying to set yourself apart and we didn't want to do that.
1: How often does that happen? Where uh, I see you guys working with the Marines, but working with the Army—is that something that's uh, unusual or not unusual?
0: I would say it's not. It's not unusual. Yeah. To this, to this amount on this this much of a relationship, working all the time yeah. is is a little less common. Uh, but I mean, that whole deployment was we didn't do any missions. Well, bar- we did barely any missions where we weren't with an Army or Marine Corps yeah. unit or at least adjacent to them. At I mean, we were definitely adjacent to them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the ACU thing, that was because that was, because those guys were living with them and we just figured let's just win in Rome. Yeah. <sighs> starting to get into this a little the order of battle for the seals would largely consist of word coming from the army 48 hours ahead of time informing them on what area Vermont they would be patrolling the seals would then plan and provide sniper overwatch during the army patrol even amid their overloaded operating schedule the men of Delta platoon gathered supplies to build a home away from home in the tattered building where they would be spending the deployment they nicknamed it full metal jacket so the building that they lived yeah. in it called Full Metal Jacket. And if you've seen the movie Full Metal Jacket, that's what this building looked like. A bunch of army guys living in there too. A plywood floor was laid. The walls were reinforced with sandbags. Foam was sprayed between the inner and outer layers for insulation. They framed and built out rooms for each man and installed a small AC unit to keep cool the air. In certain parts of the building, the men needed to watch their step in order to, expo- to avoid exposed rebar. The heat was miserable in May, reaching upwards of 115 degrees, and fixing up and finishing full metal jacket was a welcome reprieve. The men of Delta Platoon had this once barely standing building a home away from home. By normal standards, nothing to write home about, but nonetheless a haven in the midst of the heat. Yeah, and that's where Mikey built Mikey's little town. Yeah, he had. And and, and just to, you know, we were talking about this was probably a month in and I I had the Marine or sorry the Army Special Operations Commander came to visit Task Unit Bruiser and I was briefing him on what was going on and I said my element in Corregidor has been out their last 23 missions they've been engaged by the enemy 23 straight missions in a row and as I'm saying that almost as if on cue, one of the guys from my tactical operations center comes in and, and says, excuse me, sir, and I'm like, yes, and he says, just to let you know, the guys in Corregidor are in contact with the enemy right now, and I looked at the the Siege Sotiff commander, and I said, well, sir, make that 24. That's, to, so to go out 24 operations in a row and be in enemy contact, it's what you were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. And I remember, actually, the 25th operation, I think it was the 25th operation, they didn't have enemy contact, and it's because they did something, like, really small. (laughs) And and they broke their streak, but um, it was, it was on. Uh, and, And you got, and again, you interviewed a bunch of people for this. The deafening noise of machine gun fire suddenly erupted from an enemy insurgent position to the right. Michael dropped into his field of fire, identifying the enemy position, immediately sent back a long burst with his Mark 48. Contact right, multiple SEALs yelled as they sent round after round toward the enemy. Mike sprinted to the closest position to cover, which was a courtyard wall of a nearby house, and picked up fire. The other SEALs and Iraqi army scouts moved into the courtyard and began returning fire as well, changing, yelled Mike, as he stripped out an empty ammo box and loaded a full one. Just as he closed the feed tray cover, five enemy fighters moved to flank Michael and his team. They are flanking to the west, Mike yelled, as he fired at the maneuvering insurgents. He caught them halfway through their movement and had them pinned behind a small vehicle. Hold them there, Mike, JP yelled. Mike could overhear the Marine Marine Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company, Anglico guys on the radio setting up for a strike on the enemy fighters he had pinned down. Cass in 30 seconds called out the controller letting the guys know the jets were 30 seconds out from dropping. For Michael this seemed like an eternity. He had the best vantage point to keep the enemy where they were as the other SEALs and scouts were still engaging the original enemy position. He conserved his ammo knowing a reload may give the insurgents just enough time to maneuver away from their current position which could cause the close air support strike to have to abort and start over. He continued to send five to eight round bursts into the vehicle. One away, 10 seconds to impact, called out the controller. The dust was heavy, but Michael could still see to know that none of the five enemy had left the position. Suddenly a flash, then the car ripped apart and disappeared in a cloud of black and gray smoke. Good hit, stand by for BDA, stated the controller over the radio. The dust cleared, where the sedan used to be was a crater with indistinguishable metal debris and other scattered and other materials scattered in the area. Michael could make out three of the five enemy now, lying in peculiar positions near the blast site. Good hits. Five by EKIA, Michael heard the controller say. The original enemy position went quiet immediately after the strike. The SEALs, Marines, and Scouts maneuvered to assess and secure the building. The Scouts entered and cleared it only to find that the enemy had left the area. All right guys, there's nothing left here. Let's Charlie Mike, said Chief Fortin, and the SEALs and Scouts moved to reestablish their security position for the main element. So that's what they were doing.
1: Yeah, I would get uh, phone messages where uh, Michael would call. We'd miss him. We'd a message. Just kick him back with, with my bros, uh, send cigars.
0: Critical information, send <laughs> yeah,
1: cigars. Exactly.
0: Uh, there's, there's, a, there's really good examples of this throughout the book. Another one, immediately enemy fire began to hit the wall around the rooftop. Michael repositioned toward the contact and fired. The enemy were using the cover of surrounding houses effectively and continued to harass the security position. It was clear this was not like other attacks, it was well coordinated. The enemy was careful not to engage from the same spot for too long and continued to maneuver and flank. The rounds from Mike's 48 began to eat chunks out of the corners and ledges that the enemy were using as cover. The short rooftop wall was beginning to degrade as well, however, and bullets were penetrating the plaster in some areas. The men stayed low and continued to engage. Michael was glad he had prepped his extra ammo ahead of time. It looked as though he would be needing it soon. Michael and the other SEALs on the rooftop were not the only ones taking fire. The Iraqi Army scouts were trying to exit the house to maneuver on the insurgents but were pinned inside. Every time one of the scouts tried to exit the house, a hail of bullets hit the area around the exit. On the rooftop, the situation was not improving and it looked like ammunition might soon become a problem. Not for Michael. He continued to engage multiple enemy positions, stopping only to reload and reposition. Mikey, how's your ammo, yelled JP. I'm good to go. (laughs) Damn bro, carrying all that extra weight might save all our lives. JP smiled, but he was really dead serious. Michael's 48 continued to eat away at enemy positions. An indistinct yell came from the right. Michael turned to see one of the enemy insurgents trying to cross the street towards the SEAL's positions. He sent a burst, and the enemy fighter fell against the hop pavement, motionless. With this, the momentum changed, and Michael moved from position to position, engaging the enemy on three sides. He was the only AW gunner on the roof, and although the— other SEALs were holding their own as well, the 5.56 millimeter M4 doesn't have quite the same effect as a 7.62 millimeter belt fed machine gun. The enemy was losing and it began to show. The volume of fire had drastically decreased and was much more sporadic until only one enemy position was still active. The SEALs and scouts concentrated fire on the spot. The area went quiet and the men waited for another attack, but it never came. In all, Michael had fired more than 600 rounds of ammunition and was likely the reason that the security position was not overrun. Seven enemy lay dead without one SEAL or scout injured.
1: A lot of rounds.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I think I've told you this story before, but (coughs) I I went over to Corregidor to check in on everybody, and as soon as I get there, everyone's like, hey, go watch Mikey's video. So I'm like, cool. So I go over, I'm like, you know, go to Mikey's palace, um, which is his little room. You know, he's got. I remember he had some kind of like red curtains Right, orange. <laughs> yeah, those are orange. I don't know what he probably took them from a house out in no, town. His
1: brother sent them to him. Oh, there you go. He says, "He goes, uh, we're seeing so I, I think this will fit."
0: <laughs> yeah, so I go in there and and uh, I'm like, Mikey, let me see your video. And he, you know, he he gets out and he's just showing it to me on his. He had a camera, a video camera. And, but you know, this is when the video cameras had just started to have their own little screens and their own little speakers, so I'm watching it. And this is the famous video, at least it's famous in our task unit, where Mikey's like filming. There's freaking everyone shooting. There's bullets flying everywhere. And then Mikey turns the video camera back at himself and he says, it's the moolah, which was. (laughs) I've never
2: seen
1: that. Oh, you haven't
0: seen that? Oh man, we gotta get that to Mm -hmm. you. Yeah, so Mikey's filming this firefight and as he's filming, you know, it's a pretty good firefight. And then he turns the camera back at himself and he's got a big smile on his face and he goes, it's the Moolab or welcome <laughs> to the Moolab or something like that, which the, the district was called the Malab district. Yeah. But he says it's the Moolab. <laughs> and so I'm watching it, you know, I'm, I'm like Mr. Serious. And so I'm, I'm, but I'm trying to hold back, but I'm smiling and then he gets done and he's looking at me and I look at him. I go, I go, bro, what are you doing filming yeah. <laughs> when there's a freaking gunfight going on? And he looks at me and he goes, I was Winchester, sir. Which means he was out of ammo. So he had already dumped like a he dumped a thousand rounds or probably eight hundred to a thousand rounds of ammunition, didn't have any ammo left. And so he's like, well I, well, I might as well make some videos. But yeah, I mean it it's when I got home, I remember I was talking to some of the Vietnam SEALs and I went and talked to this one Vietnam SEAL that was a machine gunner in Vietnam. And you know, I said, I said you know, how many like, how many engagements did you get in? And he, he said, oh, you know, we did whatever it was. He said, you know, we did 82 operations and we got in seven gunfights. I said, how many times did you use all your ammunition? He's never. <laughs> and here it was, I mean, there was all, machine gunners would run out of ammo on a, not a fairly regular, but definitely ran out of ammo. Cause that's the, that was the scenario, that was the situation on the ground.
1: And that's why he would take less water. Mm-hmm. He always uh, took just what he hoped he could you know, need, but, and he would substitute the water for ammo. Yeah.
0: And he'd be carrying a radio sometimes, too, yeah. which so is he's crazy. he's carrying a load. <sighs> and he
1: has a sense of humor.
0: <laughs> it's the moolab. I can't believe you haven't seen that video. Oh, it's freaking classic. Uh, meanwhile, while that's going on, back to the book. Hey, Dad, it's Mike. Michael spoke happily into a satellite phone. He'd just returned from an op, but after showering and changing in his gear, he dialed home to check in. Mikey, how you doing? I'm doing good, Dad. We're still training Iraqi forces. I'm pretty bored here. Yeah. <laughs> What's new at home? Michael's careful not to detail the n- true nature of the work they conducted on a daily basis. He didn't want his parents to worry. He preferred to keep the amount of danger they faced to himself. As George and Michael discussed his gear and weapons, Sally walked over to George. She was eager to hear Michael's voice. She had barely spoken to him since he left because every time he called, she made sure her children and husband had ample time with Michael on the phone first. She was also busy finishing up a master's degree in counseling, marriage, and family therapy. So any amount of time she had to speak with Michael, she treasured. Michael never discussed any of his combat operations with her. She knew he wanted to protect her from worrying. But she also knew better. She had walked past the hallway when her sons were on their computer looking at photos of Michael patrolling through the streets and she instantly knew he was facing grave enemy day in and day out. She couldn't be there, but she could pray and that's what she did. She prayed the rosary, a collection of prayers based on the life of Christ and honoring his blessed mother, whom war fighters have credited assisting them in epic battles throughout history. Sally wasn't seeking anything grand with her prayers. She simply requested protection for her son as she prayed it every single day. It was now Sally's turn to speak to Michael. And she held the phone tightly to her ear so she could hear her son clearly how are you mike i miss you did you receive the care packages we sent to you we really enjoyed making them for you and your teammates they were great mom thank you even the package full of female toiletries you and your <laughs> friends threw in there yeah
1: these the, she had these women volunteers and uh, they did other charity work and they sent stuff and so <laughs> Nobody knows how that got in there, but Mike says, You guys had kind of a crazy look when they opened that one up like <laughs> Are women coming? <laughs>
0: yeah, the the So my wife is at home. She yeah. got three kids. They're like how old were they? They were like maybe seven five and three or something like this. There maybe even, you know, six, four and two or something like this. So she doesn't have time to do all this stuff. So finally I get you know, everyone's getting a care packages <laughs> yeah. and all this nice stuff. I'm not getting anything. Finally like two months in deployment, I'm I get so, a package. So, and I, I still harass my wife about this. I like honey roasted peanuts, yeah. right? And so she sent me a planner's thing of honey yeah. roasted peanuts, but it was open and was taped shut. It was open, it was half eaten. My freaking kids got into it, it was taped shut. That's what I got. I'm like thanks, darling. <laughs> but I didn't ever get women's toiletries.
1: Yeah, no one figured out where those came from. But uh, they, they got a lot of women's <laughs> magazines too from uh, people. So I would contact anybody that would send things. Yeah. We sent stuff, and uh, people would volunteer to send stuff. And I, you know, it was just crazy. <laughs> Guys would risk their life to go out and get those packages. You know, yeah. hey, women' toiletries. <laughs> just what we need. <laughs>
0: Uh, He says, I'm gonna go head to bed now. I wanna say hello to you guys. Mike's voice began to drift off. The day's operation had begun to hit him like a wall. His body was now just registering need for sleep. Of course, take care of yourself. We're all okay here, Michael. Stay focused so you can come home safe, Sally said. Those words became her parting words every time she spoke to him. Stay focused so you can come home safe.
1: We would, uh, Lie in bed, uh, just kind of looking at the ceiling, and so I would say, we all know that he's just not kicking back. You know, it's kind of a, a charade here, you know. But uh, we were pretty aware of what was how bad Ramadi was, but we knew he didn't really want to get into it, so we kept the conversations pretty light.
0: Now, when Mark got killed, did you guys did you guys become aware when Mark got killed? Yeah, I went
1: to the funeral, mm-hmm. and that's where. Uh, Sally met um, met Debbie, Debbie, uh, but uh, also um, I put you know I keep thinking Kay. Uh,
0: oh oh, from the book.
1: Yeah, met Cowie, Macawie. Got and it. Cowie comes up to her in his crutches and says, "Michael saved my life. Michael saved my life." And when Sal was thinking well, how could he save your life if he's just marching people around and then he told uh, her the story and that's why it was like yeah we, we know a little bit better than that but uh, and of course uh, we had a conversation I remind him we don't we don't really need heroes just do a good job and uh, he says don't worry um, if if uh, I remember him saying, uh, we talked about his death, about Lee's death and everything, and those guys took it pretty hard. And, he, and I said, uh, we've really got to be careful. And he goes, don't worry. He says, if I go here, I will be the one that decides. I still remember that, especially when he, he didn't have to. He could have gotten out of that. He decided. And I, it just always sticks in my head. That conversation.
0: Yeah, I, I, I know that uh I mean my wife had no idea of what was going on yeah. um, at all.
1: And but then well, no, because uh, she didn't even give you a full can. That's true. <laughs> that's <laughs> I'd
0: true. say she has no clue. <laughs> but you know, even Cowie got Cowie got wounded, but you know, she just I think she just thought it was anomaly, and and like I said, I mean she had um yeah. She had a, you know, she had three kids going on, freaking young kids and everything. But uh, I think everybody, when Mark got killed, it was like, oh, wake up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, it's I was looking through my emails a, a, a while ago, which is crazy to look through emails. And I have, like, all the emails. I was reading emails that I sent my wife. And, you know, it's like, oh, uh, what is it? July 29th, you know, um, then... July 1st or so, July 31st, and then August 2nd. That's the day Mark died. And there's, you know, my, you know, I sent an email August 3rd, like, hey, hope everything's okay, you know, something like this, but still nothing. Um, and I think that was everybody, you know, kind of like what Mikey was doing. So you just don't want people to worry, but then that yeah. was just, uh, no way to hide that. Yeah.
1: Well, we saw Cowie again, uh, we invited some of the seals for Thanksgiving, and uh, we still didn't know the uh, whole story, and then on Thanksgiving, he says, "Uh, I can I talk to you? And they went into another room, and he says, let me tell you what I saw. And then he pulls up his shirt, Mm -hmm. and he has that huge tattoo. He goes, I swear, this is what I saw. So it was like, you know.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, so, Cowie, who is uh, was wasn't tasking a bruiser and was, was just a freaking awesome guy. That's the the opening story is Mikey dragging him out of the out of the street, and he ended up getting a tattoo mm-hmm. of of Mikey with these angels wings. It's Cowie was telling the story the other day, and one thing I, I he he was saying it was like he was about to say something like he, or maybe he was like, Hey, I need, and as soon as he was saying, I need help. Like he felt Mikey's hand, like grab his gear yeah. and start pulling him. He was like, that's Johnny on the spot right there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not that I'm not real religious, but things like this just hit me sometimes. Like, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. have explanations for some of these things. I, uh, I think the older you get, you start to see more things. That are just, uh, can't really explain,
0: but
2: uh.
0: it was the 15th of August. The, uh, the Iraqi army along with the U S army would be conducting clearance of another portion of the Malab district. The houses were tightly packed and clearance would likely be slow. The seals came prepared and were all set with cardboard, shade water and a ton of am- extra ammunition. The men didn't know it, but they would soon have no need for the shade as the, Called a prayer ended. Michael scanned the surrounding area with his periscope. He glanced over to see his teammates to the right, each with their own as well. He smiled and continued to scan. It had worked out so well for Michael that a bunch of guys had had them sent out. This is Michael ended up getting his like combat periscopes, which ended yeah. up being awesome.
1: Yeah, I remember uh, Sarah I was. Uh, was sending that out, and she's yeah. looking at me like, were well, play they to- playing games over there?
0: <laughs> yeah, imagine how nice it is when you don't have to poke your head up yeah. over a wall. Yeah. Uh, nothing to see here, guys, just the Iraqi army and dudes getting unloaded, Michael called. Then the loudspeakers crackled on. That's weird, thought Michael. It seemed as though the prayers were going to start again. A voice came over the loudspeakers, but it sounded different this time. It was not the usual singing. It was speaking, and the words were different. What is that? Are they praying again? That doesn't sound like prayer, Chief Fortin said. I know, it's not the same, Michael responded. The interpreter burst through the couple of door and onto the roof. It's directions, they're being direct directed, he blurted. What, who, asked Chief Fortin. The speakers, the enemy fighters are being directed on where to go, the interpreter replied. Oh well, shit, <laughs> oh well shit. JP, Doug, Mike, do you have a shot to take out those speakers, Chief? Called Chief Fortin, but the snipers had already been trying to work a solution. No joy, Chief, was the response. Mikey, I hope you brought a lot of ammo. Shit's probably going to get real stupid real quick, Chief Fortin said. Always, Mikey replied.
1: Was that uh, a 12-hour? Uh,
0: uh, yeah. Yeah, that one... What ends up happening, comms chatter, but most of it was not pertinent to Michael. Most of it was information flow from different units, leaders, back to, to the Joint Operations Center, where the operation was being monitored. Michael's concern was keeping the enemy pinned, and if one of them was brave enough to try and move out in the open, dropping in in his tracks. The clearance was ongoing, but the insurgents currently attacking the SEAL position were relentless, and I fast forwarded to this. They, they just basically got like an all-out assault. Right. This was not ideal, but it also meant that they were not trying to advance towards the overwatch position. It had been hours, and neither side could get the upper hand. Michael moved from position to position, firing at multiple enemy locations. It looked as though this fight was not going to be over anytime soon, and he wasn't wrong. The entire engagement lasted 12 hours.
1: I mean, imagine people have never served 12 hours. I mean, it's... The way these guys stay together, and then the next day they go up and do it yep. again. It's uh, people. I just don't. It's just un. It's just remarkable what these guys do.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, uh, a lot of times you know people talk about basic SEAL training and they talk about buds. Oh, buds was hard. And it, I look, it is hard. It's hard as hell, and it's a nightmare for guys to try and get through. Yeah but what you just talked about and what I usually try and explain to people is, oh, you saw an army guy get killed, you were in a firefight yesterday, you had rounds snapped by your head, you had like all these things happen. I mean, on some of these engagements, uh, JP dragged a, a Marine out of the street. I, I forget the number, but the Marine got shot, another Marine got shot, an Iraqi got shot, a seal got shot through his backpack, through his uh, water bladder, his camel back on his, so it was like in one little engagement, yeah. five people got shot. And what do you do? The next day, you go out again. Yeah. And then the next day, you go out again. So yeah, The look, buds is hard, I get it, but this stuff right here, and, and look, it's not just seals, the Marines are going out every day, yeah. the Army's going out every day, and everyone's taking those risks and that's why the bond was so tight with the army and the Marine Corps in Ramadi because everyone was doing everything we could to protect each other and that's why that bond was and is so strong yeah
1: yeah. I read some of uh, uh, Michael's emails uh, and I was, his friends in the states crying that uh <laughs> Girlfriend, the girlfriend doesn't love him anymore, or or her boyfriend left, and they're having a tough time in college. And I'm and Mike writes back, you know, encouraging them, and the whole deal. And I'm thinking, really? They're having a tough time. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it definitely is, and that's what I love about this book is you start to realize the. I mean, this is what the daily life is like. Um, captured it really, really well. And that's. I think that's important for people to read these type of books
1: uh, and get a taste. And these, these stories, as you said, they're from uh, the guys that were there. These stories are, are real. And uh, I think it would give uh, the rest of the country just kind of a fingernail sketch of what these guys go through. And also, if you have, you know— a, a, Teenage um, children, they can see that uh, guys like Michael, they're just like them. They, they have problems when they're kids and they deal with bullies. And it's that determination and that strength that you build up mm-hmm. in your life that
0: prepares you for the world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the fact that the first time Mikey went to Buds, he quit. Yeah. And you, you know who else did? Mark Lee. Mark Lee, the first time he went to Buds, he quit I no. and I always uh you know occasionally I'll talk to someone that's that had been to buds and quit and I usually tell them if they seem like they're a good person I'll say if they if they say they want to go back and oh. I'll, I'll say hey you're to Mikey Monsoor and they say yeah and i know go Mikey Monsoor quit the first time he went and now I'm gonna be able to tell them but when you get defeated it's what you do what's <laughs> what's the quote I gotta learn <laughs> It's how you come back from it's defeat. How you
1: come back from defeat. So that's
0: what I'm talking about. That's so the man. We're going to add woman. that in there.
1: Whatever it is, it's the way you come back. It's always wake go. Because we've all had losses. And for me, when I have a bad loss, uh, it just burns. And burns. It's there forever. You Sometimes you forget about those easy wins, but you remember those losses. Oh, yeah. And usually, hopefully, you'll walk away with a lesson. And uh, Michael just. When that happened, I just, it didn't surprise me at all. He was coming back. He will win. Yeah.
0: So pushing a little bit further into deployment, we're getting towards the end of deployment. Michael gripped the phone close to his mouth. Hey, Dad, we're just about done here. I volunteered to stay for a few more operations so one of the guys could leave early. His wife is having a baby soon. It won't be long. I expect to be finished up in about a week. I'll also be helping do, to do turnover with the incoming team. Then I'm heading out. My stuff is packed and ready to go. That's great news, Mikey. Your mom and I can't wait to see you. We're gonna celebrate and have a big party when you get back stateside. George felt a great relief to learn that Mikey was so close to coming home and almost silly for having thought that he may not see his son again. Take care of yourself and we'll see you soon. And that's something you told me uh, uh, a little while ago was that Mikey was always Telling you about who's married and checking in on who has kids, and that was a big it was, concern. It is.
1: was. He knew who had kids, who was married, and he he would tell me, "I worry about these guys." He goes, "I don't want to be the guy that lost one of these uh, one of these guys who has children," because he believed fathers mothers is you know a two person deal, and uh, he's always loved kids, and he just. Would be so bothered knowing that on his watch somebody lost a father, and it, he would talk about. I mean, how many people really want to find out who's got kids and married? But he he would want to know, and he would keep, keep it in the back of his mind. Mm-hmm. So I know it always concerned him because he just didn't want to lose a father. <laughs>
0: It was the 28th of September, and the first of the 506 had one last request, Operation Kentucky Jumper. The SEALs would be providing overwatch for combat outpost Eagle's Nest, while the external wall of the combat outpost was being reinforced. In addition, the first of the 506 would be conducting a clearance in the same area, which the SEALs would cover as well. The insert would take place at night. The two elements would leave COP Eagle's Nest and set up mutually supporting Rooftop overwatch positions in two prominent houses much like they had been doing for the entire deployment The men had conducted this type of operation many times and at this point it seemed like this one would be much the same So they push in they do this overwatch (sighs) Around 11 a.m. The army moved out of the area having finished operations for the day The SEAL overwatch positions remained in place and would extract under the cover of darkness later that night. Other than the first of the 506 doing clearance ops and us being in the area providing overwatch, it was kind of a somber day, Doug said, referring to how the day was going in comparison to other similar operations they had completed. Based on most of the previous operations, the likelihood of the firefight was low, of another firefight was low. The temperature was reaching 115 degrees and they would stay there until late into the afternoon and only begin to cool when the sun dipped below the horizon. As the morning turned into day and then early afternoon, Michael, Doug, and Mike S. talked of heading home and what was next for each of them. There was a sense of excitement. We were proud of what we did. We are proud of our relationships we had built with the Army and the Marine Corps, recalls Mike Sorelli. The men talked of their families. Doug would be headed back to Georgia to see his three sons. Mike S. was ready to get back to his two-year-old little girl. Michael listened as the guys spoke of heading home. He was ready as well. Sniper school, heading into his next platoon, snowboarding trips, and driving up the coast to see his family in Garden Grove. Doug recalls how cool and relaxed Michael was. He just had a real calming sense to him. You could tell instantly what a great person and warrior he was to this point. It was the most one-on-one time Doug had spent with Michael. As the day continued on the intense heat had begun to wear on the men, the shade material helped, but not, but the heat radiated from surfaces all around them. Not even the light breeze brought reprieve. The air was stifling dry and filled with dust. lack of activity and the heat induced lethargy degrading the men's awareness boom an explosion rocked the rooftop Michael ran back over to the position between Mike s and Doug what was that RPG asked Doug sure seemed like it Mike s replied the anger on Michael's face was apparent as he searched for the insurgent responsible for the attack. Mike S moved out of his loophole and called the other element. We just took an RPG, searching for the shooter now. What have you guys got? Doug rolled into the open spot as it had a better field of view than his loophole. Michael sat on the chair between the two with his Mark 48 resting on the wall of the rooftop. Mike S continued updating the other element while Michael, Doug, and Benny scanned the area. They saw nothing, no enemy movement suddenly an object just barely cleared the lip of the wall and hit Michael in the chest it bounced off and rolled to the ground directly in front of him Mike s looked over at what had just landed next to the group then up at Michael Michael stood so quickly and with such force that the chair he was sitting on sailed across the rooftop and impacted the opposite wall Michael looked at Mike s and yelled grenade Mike S watched in disbelief as Michael, the only one of them who had an out to escape the blast, instead lunged forward, dropping directly onto the grenade. Seth's element had heard and seen the two blasts from their overwatch position and were already moving when the call for help came in. The men urgently picked up the pace when they heard the amount of enemy automatic weapons fire that their friends were receiving. They broke out from the main house, the main entrance and headed west. Initially it was all quiet at their position, but within 15 seconds of hitting the street, all hell broke loose. Enemy rounds snapped and skipped around them. They moved from cover to cover, returning fire as they closed the distance to the other overwatch position. They were only two blocks away, but to the wounded seals, it seemed like it took forever for the other element to arrive. Hold on, Mikey, hold on, Mike S. said as he and Doug continued to assess and aid Michael. Suddenly, a seal from the other element burst onto the roof and headed over to Doug, Mike S., and Michael. He was followed by Seth and the other seals. One of the strongest seals grabbed Michael and hoisted him onto his back. Seth grabbed Doug, and the others took Mike S., they could hear the 25-millimeter cannons of the Bradley fighting vehicles begin to fire, effectively suppressing the enemy and providing cover for the SEALs to load their wounded. Mike S. directed the group as they moved down the stairs and into the alley to the waiting Bradleys. Doug, Mike S., and Michael were loaded onto the b- into the back along with one of the SEALs from the other element. He stayed to continue to aid Michael while the Bradleys extracted them and headed back to Camp Corregidor. When the wounded seals arrived, they saw the men from the first of the Five O Six lined up waiting to support whatever they could, another testament to the bond that the two units shared. Doug, Mike S, and Michael were loaded onto stretchers and brought into the aid station on the camp. Doug and Mike S were given shots of morphine for the first time since the grenade explosion. They finally had reprieve from the physical piercing pain. The reprieve, however, was short-lived. The atmosphere in the room shifted, the mood had darkened, and the two men could feel it. Then they overheard the nurse say it. Michael was gone. In that sobering moment, they became aware of what Michael had given them. He had freely exchanged his life for theirs. It was September 29th, the feast day of St. Michael the Archangel, the protector and guide of warfighters fighters since time immemorial, and whom Michael had been named 25 years earlier.
1: Bad day for the family. <clears throat> Remember Jim called me. Could hear him crying. Dad, it's bad. It's bad. I said, What's bad? He says, uh, Michael Michael died from Marty. Please get a hold of Joe. I tried to call Joe and I finally got a hold of him. He was uh playing football in North Dakota. And uh, I couldn't even tell him. Finally got a hold of him. I couldn't even tell him. I couldn't even talk. I said, call your brother. And uh, I guess when Sal saw him at the door the Navy, she just knew it was a bad day. I just, uh, because we... You had that call that says, I'm coming home. So now it's like all oh, you're planning is what we're going to do when we get together. Uh, it didn't
0: happen. I, um, well, so I'd been tracking the operation, I was in the Tactical Operations Center and and it was troops in contact which was like like i said this was like a almost daily occurrence that guys would be in there and then you know you got you hear wounded and now all of a sudden that's not common and um the kazivaks get called and i can hear some of the radio calls and i i end up redirecting the kazivak to their location and, and finally it was actually Colonel Clark God bless him he he called me and um yeah he told me uh he told me uh, uh, Sorelli and Doug he said they were they were wounded but they're going to be all right. He said Benny was gonna be okay. He said that Sorelli and, and and Doug were gonna be for you know, getting flown out. And he and he said Mikey wasn't gonna make it. And um I mean we sent guys to escort Mikey home and I mean, we still had to finish deployment. We still had to turn over with the next guys. And, and thankfully, Andrew Paul, he's the guy that, that had come home early.
1: Yeah, Mike relieved him so he could have the ba- his wife could have the baby.
0: And so he knew. I mean, obviously, he was Mikey's you know, assistant platoon commander with Seth, and, and, and thankfully, he was home. So that he could be there, but I mean, as soon I talked to Seth, Seth and Seth had to go back out into town. By the way, they got back, and Seth had to go back into the city because they left their Iraqis there. They left a bunch of gear there, and so Seth had to go back out, gather up their Iraqis, gather up all their gear, come back, and then he called me, and he immediately he he knew. he said, "Hey, Mikey jumped on that. Mikey jumped on a grenade." And a few hours later, I talked to uh, Mike and Doug, and they're in Germany, and they're like, "Hey, he saved us. That's the only reason we're here." And um, I talked to Seth, and Seth was like drafting up the Medal of Honor, and I was like, "Do it." I remember I did.
1: (laughs) When Seth came to visit the house, I didn't want to see him. It was like, I've had it with you guys. I don't even want to see you. Seth is hard to say no to (laughs) because you can see the sincerity on his face. And, uh, you know, the family, we just worked it out. But, uh,
0: we can cry at any moment when we think of Mike that's um it's the way it is I I know uh and man Sarah your daughter what a what a just awesome woman yeah very strong very strong and I remember her and I don't uh, she said it to me but I I think I remember her seeing it later people were you know you guys were getting interviewed she was getting interviewed and she was basically. Someone said, are "You know, you are you surprised that this happened?" And she said, "No. Anybody that knew Mikey's not surprised by this." Um, yeah. Uh, when at what point did you hear about the Medal of Honor? Uh,
1: what happened was. Uh, Some guy from the newspapers called us about it, and I didn't know what he was talking about. And we had gotten so many calls, all kinds of things. We had hate calls. We had uh, newspapers, uh, interviews. Most of the stuff we said no, and uh, we just want to be left alone. In fact, we were so used to getting bad calls, uh, I remember the president uh, was trying to call us, because uh, this is when uh, they decided to award him uh, the medal, and uh, Sarah kept trying to tell me, uh, "Would would you pick up the phone?" <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, "This is I go. What's this guy keeps bothering me? It's just the same number. I don't know what this asshole wants." And then she goes, "Dad, would you just pick up the phone?" You know. So that's when we knew it was real. Because you hear people, everyone is talking. We, you know, could do this and that. But I mean, it's nice, but it's not your son, yeah. you know. And uh, it's uh, it, our our family appreciated it, but you know, that hole is still there. I think anyone who's lost a child—I don't care if it's uh, in the hospital, an accident—there's a hole, and we're in a real sad family. And me and Debbie Lee were talking about it. It's just, it's just there, and it just hits you every once in a while. Hearing kids playing in the playground or something like that, it just hits you. It's, mm-hmm. You just don't get over it. But uh, we were treated very, very nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, surprising, because I was in the Marines, and uh, the SEAL family is totally different. And I was kind of shocked. I was like almost too shy. Okay, well, leave us alone, you know. But uh, I was really taken back by um, you know these guys coming over and checking on the family, and uh, it was a good thing. At what point did you hear about the ship? I was about. uh, I remember uh, Doctor Winter talked about uh, a ship, and see, we don't know anything about the navy. (laughs) uh we're not into the ceremony stuff and it was like yeah okay whatever uh didn't you know uh really think about it mm-hmm. it was just in passing we thought and then a while later maybe uh 6 months later uh we get this thing where uh they're going to name a ship after michael we had no no idea it was going to be like 10 years i mean it was just incredible and it was like fly here fly there and that's why my kids after a while, we're not going any place <laughs> we didn't realize it was going to turn into a job and uh it was everything was nice and uh but it's not something we really wanted uh we were real happy to just go back to simple nobody knows us and so it was it was busy for the first couple of years and finally it you know it disappeared and it was okay but um oh goodness, i would think leave it to mikey <laughs> <laughs> he still got something going on and even this book people would talk to me uh we'd have uh, writers sitting on our porch wanting to write uh, a book and must have had a dozen of them we passed on all of them mm-hmm. and then just uh when one of the sailors did a book on michael and gave it to his mother at the cemetery, and that's when I started thinking my grandchildren should have a book
2: because
1: mm-hmm. they should see what it's like. Um, you know, they got to understand that Michael, Uncle Michael, went through some of the same things they went through. You know, it just doesn't happen. You've got to have, you know, you've got to be able to figure things out. You have to be strong enough because when you're a kid, you're bullied or you're, you know, you're not. Sure of yourself. The world is is really scary for him, and and I thought it would be good that they could see their uncle had the same kind of problems, and he got through it, and they can get through it too. So, and I I would hope anybody who would read this, the same thing, you know, a young man or uh, reading this uh, realizes he's he's got a long ways to go in his life, and um, he can pull himself together. Some guys. uh, I hired a lot of young people in my time, and some of them they just never got that message. <laughs> now they're in their thirties and forties, and they're still children. Yeah. So um,
0: yeah, it's it's weird too. I I, I got to admit, from my perspective, when you talk about Mikey, like as a boy, it, by the time he was in the teams, which yeah. is when I met him, yeah, he was no boy. No. And 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 then I was telling you this before we started recording, like. He was getting big, Yeah, so he cut the sleeves off all the shirts. Everybody started calling him sleeves because he was just like getting jacked. But I mean, he was, you know, even even when we say Kevin Lace, Kevin Lace is a really big guy, but Mikey was also big. So it's interesting when you put it all together and like you say, the arc of the book, the Mikey I knew was just a badass, right? And he might've been a new guy and he might've been, you know, like young for the SEAL teams but he was a badass. Yeah. So to connect that to this guy who you know had asthma and got bullied, and like, like n- while I knew Mike, Mike was not getting bullied by anybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So he had uh, overcome all that, and, and, and like you said, um, uh, risen up, and at the same time that he had that quality, like there's literally no one else that you would rather have to watch your back.
1: Yeah. No, he was. If if he said I've got it, he meant it. You know, if if he says you're my friend, you could you could take it to the bank. He will do everything uh, that he can if you if you have a problem. And I remember Gabe talking about how close they were. Gabe was uh, was Greek. And Michael, being uh, Lebanese, he would, he would call him his Lebanese brother. No, no he'd call him his Mediterranean brother.
0: <laughs>
1: we we'll would go out and choke on some olives or something. I don't know. Uh,
0: you know, this, the, the stuff with the ship, um, I mean, it was—see, it was, I see, I got to look at it from afar. Right, I wasn't all mixed up in it like you guys <laughs> were. flying fly in all the time. Yeah, uh, you guys, the keel, this is from the book, the keel laying is the first of three ceremonies in the life of a ship symbolizing the ship's transition from a mere concept to a product that will one day become a US warship. Navy tradition has celebrated special keel laying ceremony for hundreds of years. Yeah. And so it talks about the fact that you guys went to Bath Iron Works up in Maine and, and welded your initials onto this like piece. That goes in there. That's yeah. sort of the that's sort of the initial.
1: There's just so much tradition, yeah. that the Navy has. And it was yeah, we would do those things, and I, and then Sal welded something in uh, uh, on the bridge someplace, you know. And it's like, <laughs> yeah,
0: and they somehow got wood. The, yeah. this guy Captain Smith, who's a great guy. Captain, yeah. Captain Scott Smith, who like took this with the utmost seriousness, of course, because he's the first commanding officer of this ship. And they got they got wood from the USS I know, Constitution. I it was
1: like crazy. <laughs> how do you do,
0: how do, you do that? Uh, you have this here. Each naval warship has its own crest and motto. And Captain Smith, who's the first commanding officer, took meticulous efforts to honor the ship's namesake with each one. For the crest, he was given parameters of simply using a shield. Yeah. The rest was up to him. He knew exactly what to do in order to make sure the ship honored its names its the ship and namesake perfectly. There were a handful of people, family, teammates, and friends he would need to talk to. He was introduced to Steve Gilmore, retired surface uh, Naval Surface Warfare Steve's captain. A great guy. He's the best. Yeah. Uh he he is
1: He's just on your side.
0: Oh he's 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 a hundred percent uh he helped me uh, I'm very good friends with him and he helped me with everything I ever need help with. And look, I caused all kinds of trouble for that poor guy. Wow. I was constantly, <laughs> constantly <laughs> causing trouble. He would bail me out of all kinds of things. So thank you, Mr. Steve Gilmore. Uh, but he was able to connect Captain Smith with a bunch of different people. Captain Smith sat down for hours with each group, learned as much as he could in order to create something remarkable that would inspire his future crew members. They would collectively come up with the, the connected with, a, with a, uh, something that connected the family with the Navy as well as the ship's unique components. And so this is for the motto of the ship became, I will defend, which carries a threefold meaning. Every military member takes an oath to support and defend the Constitution. Another prominent mil- military ethos says, I will defend the defenseless. And the St. Michael prayer calls upon the mighty angelic soldier to defend us in battle.
1: Have you been in in the ship? I have. When I talked to Scott, I was like, uh, we wanted something for the SEALs not to be forgotten. And uh, that's why if you walk in, you'll see the pictures of those other SEALs. And uh, it was important to us that uh, those SEALs aren't forgotten. Because sometimes Congressional Medal of Honor, people forget about these people. Well, pain is the same. And we wanted to
0: remember them on that ship. So, um, he, he did a good job for us. No, they did a beautiful job. The ship was, the ship was awesome. And they ended up with the, 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 there's a Flintlock pistol, which came from the trident yeah, on the thing, which yeah. is awesome. There's a, there's a Roman numeral three, which is like yeah, yeah. legit for team three. Scott did his homework. Yeah, no, yeah. He, he definitely, um, definitely did an awesome job with all that. And eventually, uh, the ship gets christened and and that was just awesome um, christening took place that was up in Bath as well up in Maine <laughs> that was when uh, Sally broke the, the <laughs> That was fun for her. She was so,
1: I, go, I just want to make sure I hit it hard enough. I, don't, I go, well, p- put my face right there. <laughs>
0: I'm sure you'll be able to p- muster it in that thing. Uh, and then finally you get the actual ship's commissioning. Yeah. And this is when the ship becomes a U.S. Navy ship. And it says here, Major Halliday was announced. And Approached the podium to give the invocation. He had flown in all the way from Korea for the special event Upon finishing his opening prayer the other speakers approached the podium one after the other They rendered their special remarks and honored the family of the ships namesake as well as the impressive ship itself then major general Ron Clark who was formerly a lieutenant colonel who's now a major yeah. general, this is how long it's been, a yeah, major general, true. who led the first of the 506 Red Curry Battalion during the Battle of Ramadi, walked commandingly over to the podium. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that, shares, that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. The bravery and sacrifice of these warriors is the highest form of service to our nation. At a time when less than 1% of American citizens will ever don the cloth of our nation in her defense, these men and women endured hardship, danger, and personal sacrifice every day to protect our country and our way of life. Let me be very clear. Our band of brothers was brought together through our fight against a tough and violent enemy. In fact, we refer to SEAL Team 3 as Army SEALs. It was the fight that brought us together, but really what defined our task force was one word, love. A brotherly love that warriors in arms share in battle, defined by selfless commitment to a mission and selfless commitment unfailing to one another. There is no greater human emotion than the feeling to belong to a team, to a unit, to a brotherhood, to a family. My association with these warriors has been the most meaningful professional relationships of my life
1: Then you anybody who served understands that I mean there are guys that I met in the service that uh, I love them as much as my own brothers and the kind of situation in Ramadi That's even deeper
0: yeah, Debbie Lee will, will explain that. You know, Mark would tell her, "These oh, these guys are my brothers," and she'd say, "Well, what what do you mean? Like, you have a brother? Yeah. You know, you, it's you not know. the same." And and then when Mark died, and she met all of us, she realized, "Oh, you are brothers." Yeah, put the
1: seal squeeze on her too.
0: <laughs> <sighs> Finally, the ship's sponsor and sole woman on stage. Walked to the podium. She smiled, her humble demeanor evident to all in attendance. She began by sharing her heartfelt gratitude to all who were with them to honor her son. She continued thanking the men and women of the military, whom she regarded as the best in the world. Finally, without further ado, she gave an order that the crew had been eagerly awaiting to hear. Officers and crew of the USS Michael Monsoor man our ship and bring her to life. That
1: was a good day.
0: That was awesome. And they... uh, we weren't the ship's crew, but they had Task Unit Bruiser was the guys that ran up yeah. and manned the ship. Yeah. Um, luckily, we didn't have to drive anywhere with it or anything. <laughs> so none of us know how to do any of that. But, <laughs> but man, it was just awesome to see that. Yeah. And and
1: Yeah, you hustled uh, pretty good. I saw you guys out there <laughs> go when
0: was the last time those guys ran? <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, the guys before. Yeah. They're like, hey, Jocko, like, don't run too fast because like, some guys <laughs> ain't doing too much, right? So of course, I'm all fired up with <laughs> adrenaline and all, all hyped, and I guess I went a little quicker than I showed up, but you know, <laughs> wore some of the guys out. Uh, and just to close this out, um, Father Halliday steps up to the podium, let us pray. Heavenly Father, bless and approve this newly commissioned vessel, the USS Michael Monsor, and its crew. Send your holy angels as custodians and guides. May Michael and the archangel ever defend it in battle. Be its protector against all enemies and ravages of foul weather. May this vessel and crew always know the friendship of the creatures of the deep, the camaraderie of the winds, and the enmity of the tides. And may the USS Michael Monsoor ever know the unified patronage of the citizens of heaven, the creatures of earth, and every mission it undertakes to restore peace, ensure freedom, and enact justice for all.
1: I've met so many really wonderful people uh, over this. and. Uh, Father Holiday was uh, was one. Uh, he also did a mass and baptized uh, Joseph's son on that oh, ship. Nice. Yeah. So there was just a lot of really really great people, and um, you know, as far as that, Sal and I were just it was some good times.
0: Well, now is that is that Joseph's son Mikey? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mikey's. Yeah. It is the weirdest thing, right? So, as you know, I, I wrote this book, Mikey and the Dragons, right? And it's obviously, it's the, the Mikey's named after Mikey. And my friend John Bozak's the artist. And uh, I'm like, hey, you know, here's the story. And so he sends me the first pictures. And they're black and white, so I don't really think much of it. And then the first color one comes. And in the book, he's got Mikey with blonde hair. And I'm like, hey man, you know, like, <laughs> Mikey's freaking Lebanese, bro, he's black hair. <laughs> And, but then when you look at the book and he's like talking me through it, you look at the book, like even the cover, like the, it's all black and he got this blonde headed kid, it makes a kid stand out. And I'm like, eh, all right, well, look Hey, go. I'm going to bleach out Mikey a little bit. <laughs> enough. But then I meet little Mikey yeah and sure enough, he's he a toe <laughs> Yeah.
1: Uh, I think mean, I told you I was complaining to Joe. I says, Joe, you got... Three little girls, and you got Mikey, and they're all towheads. I says you couldn't have given me one brown kid with a big nose. Seriously,
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh oh, man! Um, But I mean, it is awesome seeing that ship, and and with this book that you just wrote with Rose. And Rose did a fantastic job. You know, she's married to a seal, so she She, captured a lot of stuff. She put
1: up with a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I'm I'm sure. She's pretty tough lady. Yeah just trying to get stories out of guys. Everyone's on all different schedules. No, she did a great job. And and, like, and because she's married to a SEAL, I think she captured it in a way that um, a normal author wouldn't have been able to.
1: Yeah, when we talked, um, I mean, she pestered me for two years. And Steve would go, I don't know, I think she's pretty good. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh when we, when we talked, it was like um, – I said, we don't, we want like real stories because she gave Sinian samples of, of uh, other of authors and they wrote about the glory of war and all that. And I said, I want to vomit. I said, that is not what we're looking for. We want real stuff. And so uh, what was good about the SEALs is she couldn't call them. They wouldn't give her the time of day. I would call them. And tell them what I'd like to do. And we had a lot of stories, but a lot of the guys, they didn't want to share those stories. It was personal, and so I respect that. But some of the guys, uh, after a couple of calls, uh, they would open up uh, to to Rose. And uh, I felt like as they opened up, they actually felt good about it. And uh, it kind of like lets some let out a little bit of uh some of that pressure of what happened over there and I was surprised how many said it was okay if they used uh you know their name mm-hmm. so <laughs> that 's when I started thinking well then they probably feel pretty good about it and it's these are all true stories so uh, i i think it's uh, it's a book that um, is worth reading
0: no it's uh it 's a hundred percent worth reading and It's a way for Mikey's legacy to you know to carry on you carry on in the ship and it's great when you meet the ship and the ship's crew they're They all know the story. They're all fired up I mean they do an awesome thing and and it's written about in the book as well as you know when you pull into San Diego Harbor Off to your left-hand side is Rosecrans where Mikey's buried and you know actually Mark's buried there and Seth Stone's buried there but when you pull in they they man the rails and they give the the ship salute you know to Mikey which is just awesome so you got the legacy carrying on with the crew with the ship yeah. and this book um in in the the young you know the young seals today they're this is what they're raised on they're yeah. raised on this is what a this is this is the ideal seal this is a guy that works hard that's never going to give up and that's going to take care of his brothers and that's yeah. that's Mikey
1: well, you have those. I think you have marks in there, and and and, and Mikey's. Is, uh, when the seals come in, they yep. they see those displays. Yeah, and I I actually think it's important so uh, people don't forget. Um, no matter who it is, uh, there are guys that really uh, they believed in what they did, and, and these young seals should know
0: that um, it's passed on to them. <sighs> well, <laughs> thank you so much for writing this book. Uh, Thanks to Rose as well. Thanks for coming down here. Uh, Echo, you got any questions? No, sir. No, sir. Mm -hmm. You just woke him up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anybody that's listening, the books available, we'll have it on our website, but you can get it on Amazon. You can get it wherever books are sold. Just get it. I mean, give give it to everybody that you know. Give it to, like you mentioned teenagers, for sure. Because um. I think they can understand.
1: It, 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 even you know, it's not like uh, it's not like this pro thing where they're going kids or parents are scared their kids gonna run out and join the military. It's the journey that he took and what he uh, overcame. And uh, these kids who are feeling you know insecure, they got to know that there's other guys out there just like them, and they did it, and they can. These kids can also get through it. And it's important. And that's why I did it for my grandkids. And I think I told you, my my granddaughter, uh, she first week in, um, in boot camp, and she I gave her one of these books uh, for the trip, and she read it. And she said, when I read the story, she goes, I hate boot camp so much. And uh, she goes, but. I realized, you know, life is tough and there's it's a journey and we have to go through these things. And Mike was my inspiration. She goes, We had to run a mile and a half and I've never run faster. And she goes, I just she says, Thanks, Grandpa, for writing the book. It's important. So eventually um all the kids will get one and a couple of words I want to take out, but I don't know. <laughs> It's a true
0: story. So what am I gonna do? <laughs> it's surprisingly clean considering it's about well, a bunch yeah, of sales. I don't know. yeah, yeah. Uh, but but no, it's awesome. And uh, hey, any, any other closing thoughts? I think that gets us up to present date. No,
1: I do want to thank you for uh, for the respect for our family and especially uh, how much you helped out, Sally. I mean, she uh, she really appreciated in the time where uh, she couldn't get to the uh, into the cemetery, <laughs> and she says to me, she goes, I hope I didn't uh, I didn't uh, disturb him or anything. I thought he was on base, and I go, well, what, what was he wearing? I think he was just wearing t-shirts and the shorts, and I said, I don't think that's the uh, the uniform of the day. <laughs>
0: uh, no, that wasn't the uniform of the day. <laughs>
1: I think you're on vacation or something. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I wasn't at work. Yeah, I got a call. and she, Hey, if uh, Sally wants to go and visit her son at Rosecrans, she's going to get in there. Yeah,
1: she was thrilled. <laughs> she was just so happy because it's like an hour and a half, two hours drive. Yeah. And uh, she didn't know that uh, they closed up, you know, at that time. But uh, I really want to thank you because she was treated very well with the SEALs and with
0: you and i also want to thank you for attending your funeral yeah, it it's very nice there. it was an honor to be there and it's a an honor to help share the story of mikey and thanks for joining us um thanks for you know the sacrifice of you your whole family i mean the Thanks for uh, for raising a son like Mikey and for sharing him with us. We won't forget him.
1: Well, we really appreciate the SEAL community. And like I said, we appreciated uh, the way we were treated. The respect from you and this family was important. I just wanted to close that out because who knows when I'm going to see you again and I really appreciate
0: this moment so thanks Jaco thank you and with that George Monsoor has left the building and once again life is a gift Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. And if you want to support the podcast, first of all, get the book. Like I said, I read like little pieces of the book. The book has a bunch more in it. They did a great job writing it. So order the book. What is it? Is it it Christmas season yet?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Technically, I think it's kind of the big even if chocolate. you're having
0: a lean Christmas. Yeah, even if you're having a lean Christmas just order the book today and you can give it to Everybody that you know, so we'll just start with that uh, Support this book, please um, If you want to further support the podcast while you're supporting yourself go and get some Jocko fuel from JockoFuel.com. You can get drinks energy drinks you can get protein. You can get joint warfare. Bunch of stuff that's going to help you. JockoFuel.com. Also, you can get the drinks at Wawa. You can get everything at Vitamin Shop. The Military commissar- Commissaries. Hannaford's. Dash Stores in Maryland. Wakefern and ShopRite. Circle K in Florida. HEB in Tejas. Murphy's in the Southeast. And Meyer. In the Midwest. So if you need Jocko fuel, go there and get it or Jocko It's
3: true. Yeah. George offline was asking about like, Hey, do you have anything for joints and aches? Cause I'm getting older. Mm-hmm. We do. We do.
0: Yeah. If you go read the reviews of joint warfare, mm-hmm. it's legit. Yeah. So
3: yeah. So it's, uh, it's one of those things where, I mean, you know, when you're young, you you don't pay attention to that kind of stuff but if you maintain like solid health joint bro you'll flow right into uh old adulthood and be fine Mm -hmm. trust me is that where you're at
0: that's where i'm at (laughs) old adulthood it is super cruel too yeah honestly it's kind of a double it's kind of a double attack yeah yeah that's
3: they pair together well as we (sighs) say
0: so there you go jockofield.com get it also origin usa hunt coming out yeah yeah, I, I could you feel that once George started talking about factory and production, I was like, almost going to go down <laughs> the path of all of a sudden we could be talking about made in America mm-hmm. and what it's like running production yeah. and what it's like to, you know, build or make clothing, because that's what he was doing, mm-hmm. running a factory. Yeah. So, uh, but we luckily, I refrained from going down the path and talking about that. Uh, but we are making stuff in America. OriginUSA.com. Go get some stuff there. Get Hunt gear, by the mm-hmm. way. We're making it as fast as we can. Hey, look. we know you bought it.
3: <laughs> is it, what is it, still pre-order right now? No, is no, no. It? We're
0: shipping it out as fast as we can. Oh, it's I, just I like checked. high demand. Yeah, I have it. but we've, we're shipping it out as fast as we can. We're making it as fast as we can. We appreciate the patience. Uh, we're working it. That's what we're doing. But hey, jeans, get those Delta jeans, the Delta 68s. Delta 68s are just the the deal, yep. kind of 100%. Yep. Now look, if you live in Michigan, mm-hmm. you live in Minnesota, you might get the factory jeans, which are a little heavier because it's a <laughs> winter time, you might be feeling it. Yeah. If you're in the Southern America mm-hmm. or in a warm place in the world, you're gonna want those Delta 68s. All day. All day, uh, and you're probably training jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. That's how it all started, by the way. The jiu-jitsu gis. You don't need to get one that's made in a communist country. You get one that's made by free people, yep. not slaves. Oh. That's originusa.com, go get it.
3: Yep, it's true. Also, Jocko's Store, Jocko Store. It's where you can get your shirts and hoodies and hats and stuff. Rash guards on there as well. But yeah, discipline equals freedom. It's good, you wanna represent. It's a good place to get your can stuff. Can you get
0: that, that thing that you're wearing right now? Is yep. that a, yes. a Jocko Store? Yep, it's Deluxe. called, it's called Team Discipline. Team Discipline. Yep. You named it. Yep. You're over know, there naming shirts uh,
3: now. Well, they all have names. Okay. Actually, you know the one? Okay, so you know the shirt you're wearing right yes. now. Your uniform. What? What is that tier? I don't forget how the tiers work in uniforms. Three. I don't know if there's such a thing as a tier. in Or uniforms. or what do you call? It? There's like a the the dress. Oh yeah, yeah. And then dress blues and, and then whatever. Class A's or something like. Okay, this. Yeah, okay yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, either way.
0: My general uniform. That's your but, uniform, right? That the shirt. shirt. That called,
3: shirt is called Black Ops. I
0: actually knew that, so I guess I knew this. Yes, I knew this shirt was called. But there's a What's white, the white one? one called
3: Declassified. Oh, and then now there's you. a new With one. The cleverness. There's What's a the new, new one? one? It's just like that, but instead of the dark gray, it's red. It's oh, called okay. Red Team. Dang, look at you. Can I get a, a gray one? Hmm, yeah, I don't. You know what would that be called? Uh, yeah, I don't know. We don't make currently make the gray one, but hey, look, uh-huh. I'll look into it. I know a guy, and you know, maybe we'll, uh, uh-huh. we'll make that happen. A gray one, huh?
0: Could be cool. Gray, I shirt. like gray shirts because they don't get dirty, but they're cool in the sun.
3: Call it, um, gray area or All gray right. operations. Isn't that a thing when it's not right or wrong? Oh, you know, it's like in the gray, area. we could call it gray, gray area. area. One of those <laughs> things, All right. Either way, yes, Jocko Store. We also have a short locker. These designs are, are 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 interesting. The last one was, is called, or this month is called the heavies.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's a badass t-shirt, by That's the a way. A good one, yeah. Gary the came heavies. Up with yeah,
3: it was good. K Dog, good. K Dog, called Yeah, the heavies know. is good.
0: Yeah, that little section of that podcast. Yeah freaking good section. The heavies are rolling in.
3: Yep, but yeah, that's a subscription scenario. You get a new shirt every month. People seem to like it, so check that out also. It's called the Shirt shirt Locker.
0: It's on Jocko Store. Yep, And subscribe to the podcast and subscribe to JockoUnderground.com. This is why we're doing it, because right now you see some social media activities that are going on right now. There's mayhem out there, (laughs) right? (laughs) Isn't there mayhem out there? It's it's mayhem out there. There's mayhem out there, so we got to watch out for that. And well, You just gotta watch out for that. (laughs) So, that's why we have Jocko Underground. We got a YouTube, you can subscribe to that. Origin USA has some stuff on YouTube too, check that one out, Psychological Warfare. Flipside Canvas, Dakota Meyer. Something, make some cool stuff to hang on your wall. Books, already, obviously, defend us in battle. Just order that book, just get it. Only Cry for the Living by Holly McKay, get that book. And then I've written a bunch of books too, but whatever. Kids books. You know, Mikey and the Dragons? Let's let's give that one some props. Oh, yeah. Mikey and the Dragons, yeah. Overcoming Fear. Obviously, Mikey, the character, is named after Mike Monsoor about overcoming fear. Uh, Echelon Front, we have a leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. Go to com for details. Next event, Orlando. April 3rd through the 5th. That's the next muster. April 3rd through the 5th, 2023. It's gonna come quick. That's the weird thing. And it's gonna sell out quick. <laughs> Everything sells out. We oversold the last muster, we oversold. Mm. We had to like move the instructor seating oh, to yeah. the to the behind the curtain yeah. type scenario. Yeah. So we won't make that mistake again, but we will sell out. So there you go. Orlando, April 3rd through the 5th, 2023. And then Dallas is also in uh 2023. We got the battlefield. We got FTX. We got all kinds of good stuff going on. Echelonfront.com. We also have online training at Extreme Ownership Academy. Go to ExtremeOwnership.com. We covering the stuff. I was there. I was on there live today answering questions. Leif was on there live today answering questions. We have courses to take. So go to ExtremeOwnership.com if you want to learn how to live your life better, especially your interactions with other humans. And if you wanna help service members active and retired, you wanna help their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization and she will be coming on the podcast very soon. And if you wanna donate or get involved with her, her organization, go to America's AmericasMightyWarriors.org. And also don't forget about Micah Fink up there in the, the North Country with heroesandhorses.org, helping veterans find themselves while they get a little bit lost out there in the wilderness. And speaking of uh, social media, we're on social media. On the gram, on Twitter, it's a new Twitter these days. Yep. And nothing's changed really. Has, have you noticed any change yet? Besides the fact that you lost your Twitter account? <laughs>
3: yeah, that was before You got hacked. I got hacked and then they abused it. They took it over. Yeah, they took it. The hackers took out over my account to do a bunch of spam stuff. That's and then Twitter shut it down because it was a bot now. But then, luckily, you said, "Try get it, get it back, your old handle." Yeah. So I registered again on my old handle,
0: so and you, I got it back. So you're still at Echo Charles. I'm still at Echo Charles. I yeah. wonder if that's us going to change because Elon's coming in eight dollars, and this all this stuff is going on. So yeah, we'll see. Heard about that. People are freaking out about all kinds of things. The the thing is, all the social media, Facebook, the Gram, Twitter—you just gotta watch out because the algorithm will grab you. That's what's gonna happen. And uh, once again, thanks to, thanks to George Montsor for coming on board, and and really, um, the entire Montsor family who I've been blessed to have gotten to know over the past fifteen years, um, just been. Amazing, an honor to know them and it's an honor to be here and and share the story of Mikey uh, absolute hero and example for all of us. So thank you to the entire Monsoor family and thanks to all the people from the military in general, the Army, navy Air Force Marines. As you could probably tell, we had an incredible relationship with all of them. And we thank you for supporting us on the battlefield and in the past. And now those that are still active duty out there protecting us today. Thank you. And we also want to thank our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders out there. You protect us here at home. And we thank you for it. And everyone else out there on Mikey's gravestone at Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery, he gives some advice on there. It's the same thing that he told his dad all those years before deployment that no matter what happens, I have no regrets. So let's go try to live like Mikey did, work hard. If you get knocked down, get back up again and overcome. And of course, put others first. Live your life and leave no regrets. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out.